Hello everyone. I hope you all had an amazing Christmas holiday. Let us begin and get right into the stories this time. As we drift further into Mr. Creep's mind. Something is wrong in classroom 42 at my school. Written by not necessarily... Sometimes when you look through the newspaper-covered windows of Classroom 42 from the hallway, you could just make out the figures of chairs and tables inside the classroom. And then, just as you were about to move your face away and go back, you could swear you saw the faint outline of a single figure moving back and forth in the room. This is a room that has been locked for the past 50 years. I go to an old boarding school. It's a big old school, and by old I mean about 200 years old. It has a rich history and has gone through several renovations over the years. Out of these six buildings in the school, all of them except Block D have been completely renovated to be modern and in line with current standards. Block D is not used for dorms or classrooms, and is mostly a building for dingy entertainment rooms and just general common areas. Block D was a mass playground for us. We spent cold winter nights cozy under blankets inside those rooms, telling each other scary stories. We also spent our summer days cooling off under the air conditioner and watching TV in that block. The teachers didn't mind and also treated it as an open area. Where the 42 rooms were left open for students to relax in. We were all old enough to take care of ourselves, and the teachers took rounds around the hallways to make sure that we were all doing okay. The only problem with Block D was Classroom 42. It was at the end of the hallway on the third floor, locked and abandoned for so long, even our current teachers don't remember why it was locked. However, there is an unspoken, well-enforced rule. Avoid Classroom 42 at all costs. In the short four years that I've been at the school, no one has ever attempted to even turn the knob on the door of that room. It's locked and that's it. All its windows are covered by a layer of newspapers, thick enough to be able to see faint silhouettes through. Upon closer inspection, the newspapers are all dated from the 1970s, which is what led us all to believe that the room had been locked for the past 50 years. And, oh yeah, we're not stupid. The newspapers have been put on from the inside. Otherwise, we would have taken them off to peek in a long time ago. The teachers also keep quiet about it, not letting on anything or just telling us to avoid the room in general that it's locked for a reason and should not be entered. One teacher went on to tell us that some bad things happen there and that it's not worth it to go there just for curiosity. You know that moment in which luck somehow aligns so perfectly that something impossible somehow becomes possible? Yeah, that's what happened with me when I found myself just walking past classroom 42 before realizing that one of the newspapers from the windows had been taken off. Several chills ran up my spine, 
as a deep pit formed in my stomach. Don't look inside. I repeated this to myself as I walked past the classroom, but I couldn't help myself. Now before you criticize my decision to look inside at the small gap that wasn't covered by newspapers, I want you to really think. Imagine you have been going past a box every day that was always closed and that you could never open. Worse still, people told you that there were bad things inside that box. And then one day, you see a hole inside that box, just big enough to look through. Would you look inside? I know that I would because that's exactly what I did. I peered right into that gap until my nose blocked me from pressing my face any further. I could see all white in that gap. The whiteness was permeated by red lines that ran like cracks through it. They led all the way to a deep sea of inky black. It's only when the pupil quickly shifted right into my own right eye did I realize what I was looking at. I backed away and yelped which let me slip and fall straight down on my backside. Pain shot up my lower spine, and I quickly scrambled up to my feet. Before I could run away, though, I found a thin hand with long, slender fingers wrapped around my ankle. It pulled me with such strength that it knocked me right off my feet. I saw a blur of more hands emerging from the slightly ajar door of the classroom, before the back of my head slammed against the marble floor. My vision darkened and in a few moments, I had lost consciousness. When my eyes first fluttered open, my vision was blurry and out of focus. A sharp ringing filled my ears as my vision adjusted. I found myself looking up at a ceiling fan and I nearly forgot what had happened to me earlier. It's fascinating how in the few seconds of consciousness, I somehow convinced myself that I had had a nasty fall, a bad dream, and I was now in the sick bay lying down on one of the beds. But that train of thought was quickly abolished by the fact that I could feel cold hard tile beneath me. I was lying down on the floor, probably still in the same hallway. So I slowly got up, wincing when I tried to move my ankle before I could tend to my ankle, I noted my surroundings. My stomach dropped beyond the floor when I found myself in the middle of an old-fashioned classroom with worn wooden desks and a black, dusty chalkboard. Come to think of it, I was surprised at the fact that I didn't realize how dim the place was, with the light struggling to pass through layers of newspaper that had been applied to the windows. This got adrenaline flowing through my body, and I suddenly backed away to the corner of the room, even though there was no real danger that I could see. Instead, I craved the comfort of having my back covered by a wall, instead of being exposed out in the open. Nothing came for me, and after a few moments of anticipation, and my heart nearly breaking my ribcage with every beat... I exhaled. Calm down, Ethan. You can do this. I repeated the mantra in my head again as I got up. The pain in my ankle flared up, and I dropped to the floor clumsily. 
Upon examination, my ankle was very bruised, with the bruises forming the shape of thin slender fingers wrapped around it. I shuddered at the thought, and instead focused my mind on getting out of the classroom. The door seemed unlocked, and so I got up once more, careful with my ankle, and I skipped over to it. As I opened the door, my hope was crushed and my mind was twisted in confusion. The door opened up, not to the hallway, but to an identical classroom, with the same newspapers covering the windows, as if somebody had copied and pasted the entire room over on the other side. I stepped into it, having no real choice. The door closed behind me with a large thud, making me jump out of my skin and shift too much weight on my ankle as I prepared to run. Consequently, my ankle collapsed under the weight and I fell through the floor. You know those images you see of hypothetical four-dimensional objects? You know how your mind hurts the more you try to make sense of them. That's exactly how I felt when I fell through the floor as if it was a thick liquid. Making sense of how I managed to fall through the floor was the last of my concerns, though, because almost immediately, I realized that I couldn't breathe. I kept on sinking into the absolute darkness, a black so deep I felt as if I had lost my sense of vision and was instead wrapped up in millions of layers of blankets and falling constantly. It's hard to describe. Imagine skydiving but while being blind and covered in lots of heavy blankets. That's how it felt, like sinking beyond the floor into the abyss. All the while my lungs burned, threatening to burst. They demanded air but I couldn't breathe. And that's when I felt the most scared I had ever felt in my life. What emotion you've been doing since you were born was now impossible. I literally could not suck in air. Nothing went to my empty lungs like I was in the vacuum of space. And then I hit the bottom. I felt it because a strong vibration went through my feet and I no longer felt like I was falling. The darkness seemed to unravel like a cloth was being lifted from above my eyes and I found myself at a beach. Everything was wrong. I was standing on water with the sand rolling in and out in waves. Its abrasive sound filled the air as a bright red sun sat on the horizon. The water didn't feel wet, yet it felt like water. The sand acted like a liquid. I stepped out towards the waves of sand and one of them licked my toes, leaving countless cuts all over my skin and scratching my nails. I jumped backwards splashing in the water, except the water didn't splash. It rippled like a mattress and settled once more. A man walked up behind me. At first, I didn't notice him, but when he tapped me on my shoulder, I definitely did. He looked like any ordinary man you would see in everyday life, a stranger who wouldn't pay much attention to and you would forget the next day. Do you know why you are here? He asked. Uh, no, I stuttered, overwhelmed by his calm composure. You shouldn't have peed into the classroom. It's a place that broke into our dimension, our realm. 
we live a realm above you, in which your mind won't comprehend what you see because you simple creatures aren't designed for it. He stated while looking at me in pity. Okay, just please, please let me out, I pleaded. No, you are our gateway, he said as armies of creatures marched ahead behind him. They came from behind the horizon and looked like nothing that I had ever seen. Remember the fourth dimensional shapes? That's how they looked. Impossible and unable to describe. I can't put into words how horrifying and strange they were. I couldn't focus on any single creature without a sharp migraine building up in my head and my eyes glazing over. Their features unable to discern anything. They didn't even have a color. No, they were transparent. It just wasn't a color that existed. I know this doesn't make sense because it really doesn't. Our minds aren't wired to see these creatures or even perceive this reality properly. It's like seeing electromagnetic waves or UV light. We simply can't. I started to sink into the water below me and into the same abyss that I had found myself in when entering this place. My lungs struggled and searched for air once more, but there was none. After a long moment, I found the darkness unravel around me once more, and I found myself in that same classroom with the door unlocked. I ran out, ignoring the pain in my ankle, desperate to escape the nightmare. But nothing was right. I could move through space, but not in a literal sense. No, that doesn't make sense. I could see myself moving forward, but it was like walking through a video game. All two-dimensional, with no genuine feeling of actually moving. I walked out into the hallway and struggled to even walk, probably as my mind fractured further. I felt like I was having a stroke. Nothing was recognizable made little sense. The world was composed of familiar objects, but upon focus, seemed unfamiliar and wrong. I could no longer walk around, utterly disoriented. I woke up in the local hospital surrounded by nurses and doctors. Apparently, I had had a genuine stroke, possibly caused by my fall on the floor. I tried to tell the doctors about the classroom, the strange beach and the abyss that I fell into, but they ignored me. They listened, but they treated me like a madman, with my mind fractured beyond repair. When my friend came to visit, I asked him about Classroom 42, and he told me that they had found the door open when they had found me on the floor. Apparently, the teachers had closed the door immediately after, but something was wrong. The door kept opening by itself every 15 minutes, with the cold air coming from the classroom, like the freezers in a grocery store. I can see them everywhere now. They are slowly leaking into our realm, taking us over. To them, we're two-dimensional weaker beings that they can manipulate on command. They walk around everywhere, permeated our world more and more. I bet there are thousands of portals such as our own at Classroom 42, waiting to be activated by a curious person. Their reality is bleeding into ours and soon they will take over. I can feel it. 
The man visited me again yesterday, this time morphed into another form. I was still in the psych ward, rambling about creatures being everywhere. They all felt sorry for me and no one believed me. No one saw him when he stepped right beside my bed and spoke in my ear. Thank you for activating the portal. Maybe we will spare you. Today's episode of Creepscast is sponsored by Masterworks. Speaking of scary things, you know what really gives me the goosebumps nowadays? Watching the markets. It feels like entering a haunted house of inflation and volatility. But on the bright side, you've probably never been more motivated to reevaluate your portfolio mix. And what if I told you there's now an alternative, less spooky investment to add to the mix? I'm talking about blue chip art. An alternative asset class with little correlation to public equities over the past two decades. Which means when the market gets scary, a well-diversified art portfolio might not. So it's no wonder that many billionaires have been quietly investing in artwork for centuries. And now you can too with Masterworks. Masterworks is the 1 billion fintech startup unlocking the once-exclusive art market, allowing you to add paintings from iconic artists like Banksy, Picasso, and Basquiat to your portfolio. And Masterworks is even giving my listeners priority access to their newest offerings. To get started, go to masterworks.art slash mrcreep. Again, that's masterworks.art slash mrcreep. A big thanks to Masterworks for sponsoring today's episode. My town has an urban legend of a creature living in the well. I didn't believe it until today. Written by Certain Emergency 122. A woman sleeps at the bottom of a well near my hometown. There's an old well located in the middle of the woods that border Penfield. It's made of crumbling gray stone and partially hidden by moss, a wide ring in the ground that threatens to swallow the unwary. According to local legend, the well is haunted. Penville was founded in the late 1800s by the Fembees, an English family that came to America to build a prosperous community. The family daughter pretended to be pious, but secretly worshipped the devil. One night, she made a pact with a demon. In exchange for eternal beauty and youth, she agreed to kill nine children. Six kids in this town were butchered like hogs, and their remains scattered throughout the woods. Before she could complete the ninth one, the townspeople discovered that she was the one responsible for it. They dragged her out of her home, tore out her eyes and threw her into the well to die. She had treaded water for nearly half an hour, and before dying of blood loss, she promised them that she would finish her bargain eventually. We had found the well entirely by accident. It was a cloudless summer day, one that we should have spent lounging by the public swimming pool and eating popsicles. But instead, Quentin and I followed James deeper into the woods. A stifling heat pressed down on me, 
and the toolbox that James had ordered me to carry seemed to weigh 8,000 pounds. I could hear Quentin panting harshly behind us as he struggled to keep up with James Pace. He carried the stack of wooden planks that would form the base of our treehouse. Even though I suspected that we were lost, I knew better than to say anything. Before James had transferred to our school, Quentin and I had been bullied relentlessly by a group of upperclassmen, with Quentin getting the brunt of it. And although I had stood up for Quentin whenever possible, I hadn't been able to stop them from mocking his weight or his tendency to babble in stressful situations. James had. He was nearly as short as me, but the handful of times that same group of upperclassmen had tried to bully James, their insults had bounced off of him as though he wore an invisible suit of armor. Quentin had promptly latched onto James. Since Quentin was my best friend, I'd had no choice but to follow him, even though his hero worship of James bothered me. Frankly, I wasn't even sure whether I liked James or not. The price of his friendship was that he always bossed us around. More to the point, it increasingly felt like James went out of his way to make me the third wheel, and I couldn't help worrying that Quentin would replace me with him. It was why I had been so determined to join them today. I didn't want to give James another excuse to cut me out. Wooden planks clattered to the floor. I turned around to see that Quentin had stopped in his tracks, the corners of his mouth drawn down in dismay. Sweat plastered his curly dark brown hair around his face. James didn't notice. It's this way, he said confidently. We're almost there. What's wrong? Tentative hope crept over me. I didn't want to be the first one to ask for a break, but if Quentin needed one, then I had the perfect excuse to set down the hateful toolbox. He pointed wordlessly at something off to the side. I followed his gaze to see a pile of gray stones, half hidden by the surrounding foliage. I blinked and realized that it was a stone well rising roughly five feet off the ground. My stomach swooped unpleasantly, as though I had missed a step while walking on the stairs. James finally realized that we had stopped walking behind him. Frowning, he asked, Hey, what's the big deal, guys? It's a well. Quentin gave the words an upward inflection as though asking a question rather than stating a fact. You know, the one from the story about the woman who killed all those kids. We must be standing in the old town square. I can't believe no one else has found it before us. He trailed off. James brightened. Let's go check it out. And Quentin and I exchanged a resigned glance behind his back. James enjoyed breaking the rules at school and he was always getting detention for skipping classes or smoking on campus. In retrospect... We should have known that the prospect of investigating an abandoned well would be irresistible to him. Hey, help me pull this off, he ordered, running his hands over the well and tugging on its wooden cover. And Quentin obediently trudged over. I thought about protesting, but the sheer force of James' personality made it hard to stand up to him. He overwhelmed you with rapid-fire sentences and rhetorical questions leaving you bobbing helplessly in his wake. And if you annoyed him enough, 
he became witheringly sarcastic, even cruel. The more that I told him not to do it, the more that he would want to. Anyway, the story about the wild is just that, a story, I thought, trying to push away the sense of foreboding. Whoever made it up in the first place had nothing better to do with their time. The wooden cover came away easily in our hands and an unpleasant smell drifted out of the well. Curious despite myself, I leaned forward to peer down into it, my stomach churning with a combination of excitement and anxiety. I have expected to see a heap of moldering bones at the bottom, but only murky water met my gaze. Sunlight clearly illuminated the well and I guessed the depth to be 20 feet or so. Nothing moved in the water. It doesn't, began James, but I never got to hear the rest of what he said. The part of the well that I had been leaning against crumbled away under my weight, sending me tumbling down into the well. The well was much deeper than I had estimated, deep enough that I couldn't touch its bottom, and the water was freezing. I clung to these stones protruding from the well's walls as I treaded water, my teeth chattering from the cold and my head aching fit to burst. Kaz, can you hear me? Are you okay? Quentin's voice ricocheted around the well, intensifying the bells clamoring in my head, and I winced. Without waiting for my response, he yelled, Don't move, I'll be there soon. Minutes passed, my fingers went stiff and numb, and I wondered if I would ever be able to stop shivering. I threw a glance upwards. The sky had turned strangely gray and cloudy, and Quentin was nowhere in sight. Worry gnawed at me. Where was he? James wouldn't convince him to leave me here, right? Suddenly, something next to me emerged from the water with a splash, startling me badly enough that I nearly lost my grab. After a moment of confusion, I realized that it was Quentin. He spluttered and coughed while treading water, and I breathed a sigh of relief. Where did you come from? What do you mean? I was right there. He eyed me anxiously and repeated, Are you okay? I nodded and then stopped. The motion hurt my head too much. I knocked my head pretty hard when I fell, but other than that, I think I'm alright. Do you think you can climb out of here? Maybe we should call someone. What if your head injury is serious and you need a doctor? I can climb. I hesitated and added. Hey, thanks for coming after me, Q. He grinned at me. Remember that time Richie threw my backpack into the dumpster? And you jumped in to help me find it. Consider us even. It took a couple of tries and some help from Quentin, but I managed to find a crevice that allowed me to pull myself up and out of the water. From there, it was easy to use the cracks between these stones as handholds and footholds, though my progress remained slow and painful. After I swung my legs over the lip of the well, I sat down with a hard thump, my head still throbbing with pain. Black sludge covered most of my t-shirt and shorts. I wanted nothing more than to be home right now, huddled under my duvet with a mug of hot cocoa on the nightstand. Absorbed in how miserable I felt, it took me a few minutes to realize that our surroundings had changed. 
A thick mist had appeared and turned the woods into a featureless landscape. Everything except for the well was colorless and washed out and seemed in insubstantial as cobwebs. I had heard that symptoms of a concussion could include blurry or double vision, but nothing like this. What if my fall down the well had permanently damaged my eyesight? I looked around wildly and saw James standing a couple of feet away with his back to me. The mist half obscured him from view, but I could tell that he was soaked through with water. It dripped down from his blonde hair and his sodden clothes, forming a puddle at his feet. And his skin was wrinkled, as if he had spent too long in the shower. Weird, I thought James hadn't come down into the well with us. James, you can see that mist too, right? He made no reply. Unease had prickled down my spine. It wasn't like him to stay silent. If anything, he should have already been making fun of me for falling down the well so spectacularly. Right as I reached out to touch James' shoulder, he whirled around. He was smiling at me, an unnaturally wide smile that peeled his lips back from his teeth. That was the first thing that I noticed. The second was that James held a butcher knife in his right hand. I had no idea where he had found it, but the blade seemed incredibly old. It was rusted and pitted from time. Rivulets of red dripped down it and over its handle. His own. He had carved out ribbons of meat from his body, plunging the knife into himself deeply enough that I could see glistening bone in some places. James started to advance on me, still smiling. A strangled noise died in my throat. Terror warred with revulsion and sent my pulse racing. I knew that I had to run before it reached me, but my legs had turned to leaden and uncooperative. All I managed was one stumbling step backwards. I couldn't tear my gaze away from the knife. What the heck happened to him? I flinched, half expecting to see James somehow transported behind me, but it was Quentin. His face white and set as he stared at James. He looked deeply unnerved. And where did he get that knife from? Jesus, we need to take him to the hospital right away. I don't know, I found him like this. James let out a sudden scream and doubled over, clawing at himself. Red-soaked hands erupted from his stomach, sending viscera flying through the air. A shoulder emerged from his body, and then a head and a knee. A tall woman stepped out of James' body, as though it had simply been an ill-fitting suit that she no longer needed. She left behind her a wreckage of his body that no longer even remotely resembled it. She had silver coins for eyes and her dark hair floated around her, as if she was underwater. When she contorted her face into a snarl, the coins squelched wetly in her eye sockets and black water gushed out of her mouth, along with a torrent of squirming white bugs and dead leaves. She knelt down and picked up the butcher knife. Run, I yelled. We have to run. We bolted. Quentin pulled ahead of me, and the mist swallowed him from view instantly. I soon became disoriented. I knew that I was moving forward, but the mist made everything around me look exactly the same. There were no landmarks. No way for me to guide myself in the right direction. 
For all I knew, I was running in circles. Something knocked me off my feet. I fell hard, barely managing to avoid smashing my head into the ground, and I twisted around to see her behind me. I tried to scramble back up to my feet and run, but she moved quickly. No matter how hard I struggled, I couldn't break her grip. She held me down with terrible strength using just one hand. For a moment, she simply studied me, her silver coin eyes shining with some incomprehensible emotion. Loathing triumphed. A carnal house smell emanated from her skin. The smell of blood, rot, and waste. Her throat made a rattling sound. She might have been trying to speak, but if so, I couldn't understand her. The knife rose into the air. I searched desperately for something to defend myself with but my grasping hands meant nothing besides dirt. There was no weapon conveniently nearby, and no way for me to wrest the knife from her. So instead, I did the only thing that I could think of. I reached out and ripped off the silver coin that served as her right eye. It tumbled away along with a handful of mushy, rotting flesh that felt like wet sand. She opened her mouth in a silent scream of rage and agony and brought the knife down. At first, I thought that she had missed. All I felt was the pressure of her arm striking me. Nothing else. But then, heat began to spread through my stomach, and I looked down to see the knife protruding from it. And that was when the pain hit. Pain unlike anything I had ever known. Dizziness overwhelmed me, and purple dots danced before my eyes. She yanked the knife back out and read my blood sprayed over her face. From a great distance, I heard Quentin shout, Get off of her! I must have blacked out because the next thing that I could remember was Quentin dragging me forward, one arm thrown around me. He staggered under my weight, nearly sending us both sprawling. I couldn't see the woman anywhere in this mist, but I knew that she had to be nearby. As I glanced around us, I thought that I saw screaming faces in the mist. Children's faces. They formed, vanished, and then reformed again. And Quentin asked, What do we do? There's nowhere to go. I tried running away as far as I could, and I just ended up back here again. All she has to do is wait for us to tie her out. An idea occurred to me, catalyzed by the fact that everything else in this world was gray and dead. I think the well is the key to leaving. After we had reached the bottom and came back up, that's when we found ourselves here, right? If we go down it again, maybe that's how we'll get home. I forced myself to continue, to say, You should leave me behind. And Quentin stared at me. What are you talking about? I'm only slowing you down. You can make it if you hurry. And if you leave me behind... She'll be, you know, distracted. Quentin hesitated, the struggle written in his face. He knew that I was right. If he had to keep carrying me, she would probably catch up with us before we had reached the well. And I had already been stabbed. I might not be a doctor, but I was pretty sure that if I didn't get any medical attention soon, that I would bleed out and die anyway. I thought that I could hear eager, squelching footsteps drawing closer to us and reminded myself that Quentin was simply making the most logical decision. 
Abruptly, he said, You're the only one besides James who's ever treated me like a human. He shrugged, looking both defiant and embarrassed. You're my best friend. I'm not leaving you behind. I swallowed past the lump of my throat, unable to think of a reply that wouldn't sound cheesy or ridiculous. We took another couple of staggering steps forward, in the direction Quentin said the well was. Gradually, I caught sight of a blurry and indistinct blob. As we neared it, it resolved into a familiar shape. Unlike everything else here, the well looked solid and real. I fixed my eyes on it, willing it to magically move closer, and fought to put one foot in front of the other. The pain in my stomach sharpened with each passing second. And when we finally reached the well, I had to stop and lean against it to remain upright. I could barely breathe. We're going to make it, I told myself. You just have to hang in there and climb down. It occurred to me that it was quiet. Too quiet. My head jerked up and I scanned our surroundings frantically, my heart pounding. A dark silhouette ran towards us. I shoved Quentin towards the well. She's here. Go. I tried to scramble into the well and failed. She emerged from the fog, and there was nothing human about her now. The silver coin that was her left eye burned with cold fire, dangling from her face by a string of decayed flesh. She had grown a double row of needle-sharp teeth, too many to fit inside her mouth. When she had snapped at them, they sent chunks of her lips falling to the ground. I was suddenly sure that I could run forever. I used the fresh surge of adrenaline to heave myself up into the well, and I threw myself down. In a matter of seconds, the ice-cold water closed over me, threatening to steal the breath from my lungs. I counted until ten, and then swam upwards. It took every ounce of strength I had to keep moving. As soon as my head broke the surface, I knew that I had been right. Warm sunlight filled the well and there was a cloudless blue sky far above us, visible through the opening of the well. Quentin had already climbed more than halfway up, but he had paused waiting for me. I grinned at him helplessly, so relieved that I couldn't speak. We made it back, I thought. We're back and we... She's coming after us. Quentin's words momentarily froze me in place. I had never considered that she might be able to follow us from the world under the well. I hadn't even thought that it was possible. I climbed up as quickly as I could, which wasn't that quickly. When I chanced to glance downwards, I saw her peering up at us, her face twisted in hatred. She started clambering up the walls of the well impossibly fast, moving in a sideways scuttle reminiscent of a spider. Her limbs twisted and contorted unnaturally around her, while their head remained perfectly still. She was catching up to me. Watch out! I glanced down in time to see her reaching out for me with one bone-white hand. Layers of skin sloughed off of it and floated through the air. Her fingernails were black with rot, some of them already loose and peeling away. I managed to duck away from her grasp, but I nearly lost my balance, my fingertips brushing the stone as I pinwheeled my arms. 
and I couldn't keep dodging her. Not without falling back down to the bottom of the well. And I couldn't climb up quickly enough to escape either. Time slowed down. Seconds stretched into minutes as she reached for me again. I had a jumbled mess of fleeting impressions. Various moments from my life flashing before my eyes. I wanted to say something brave. Something that would leave Quentin with one last good memory of me. But nothing came to mind except for, I don't want to die. I looked up and he was still too far away to help me, nearly at the top of the well. He stared at me with an uncertain expression on his face and took a deep breath. He said, I'm not leaving you behind, Cass. And then he threw himself at her and dragged her down the well. I Met a God While Walking Through the Forest Written by Weird Bryce Guy The air was cool, crisp enough to necessitate a jacket, but not cold enough to warrant staying inside. I wanted to go out, to walk around in the open air, to breathe in the bracing freshness of it. After a breakup with my girlfriend of two years, I had been bored and lonely, and while I wasn't really ready to interact with people, I did want to be around them, felt that I could find company in their proximity. So, I put on a rather loose and somewhat antiquated jacket, inherited from my fatally adventurous grandfather, and I headed out. Ignoring the pathways that led toward town, I instead ventured in the direction of the country, wanting to be as near as possible to the plains, fields, and the natural, humbling openness of rural life. There are still homes and homesteads abound, and I knew that just seeing them in the distance, or passing peacefully by them, would be enough to satisfy my small desire of human availability. The sky had been grayed by some earlier storm, and was in the dismally gradual process of clearing up. The clouds, plump and slow-moving, occluded the light of a burgeoning sun, and the resultant atmosphere was partly gloomy, partly promising of a bountifully lit afternoon. I paid no real attention to the sky's progress, Satisfied to allow it to deepen in its gloom or clear up completely, I decided on a seemingly sourceless whim to leave the side of the road and head into a far-spanning field, a space between two far-flung properties. The grass was still wet, the soil underneath soft, but I was able to tread it easily, without anything clinging to my shoes. I don't remember going very far before it happened, I couldn't have walked for more than 20 or 30 yards, no more than half a mile from the road. The sky, in a shockingly sudden atmospheric shift, blackened, the clouds becoming pitch black veils, hovering shadows amidst some void expanse. The sun's light was instantly snuffed out, and if you would have told me that the celestial body had been wholly obliterated or removed from its position in space, I would have probably believed you. 
The sudden totality of darkness was that jarring, that inexplicable. For a terrifying moment, I was blind, sight utterly taken from me. And then I saw it. A single flash which illuminated the countryside in a deeply but inexpressibly unsettling manner. An uncanny spark of almost supernatural activity. After a moment, another followed, and then another, and the sounds of their explosive violence had reached me, and I finally realized that I was caught in the middle of a thunderstorm. Hell came moments later, small jagged chunks of crystal that harmlessly bounced off my head, covered with a baseball cap and jacketed shoulders. Some crystals were larger than others and therefore more dangerous, but I didn't pay any attention to these. Being so wholly captivated by the thunderstorm, the volatility of the coming chaos, breathlessly I watched those sparks suddenly arc, as if further galvanized by some engine amidst the heart of the storm, and beheld a dizzy and terrifying showcase of nature's raw power. The lightning coursed through the sky like a pendulum, arcing back and forth, drawing closer to the earth each time in a hungry search of something with which to make contact. The air, electrically charged, smelled of burnt earth and volcanic winds. I don't remember ever thinking, you should run. The phenomena above were so stupefying, so existentially humbling, that I was as fixed to that spot as a tree or a signpost. And it was this status as a fixture, the sole object in that field, that brought to me the searing fury of that storm. I saw a blossoming of light, as of some solar eruption, and then felt with my entire body the passage of an immense electric charge. I was saved from utter destruction by the millions of electric volts thanks to my grandfather's jacket. Had I been wearing my usual leather jacket, or anything more restricting, I probably would have been cooked alive in my clothing during the flash evaporation of my body's sweat. The lightning strike was still unsupportably powerful, and I was knocked unconscious immediately. And upon waking, I found myself lying several feet from where I had been standing. There was a curious pattern of burning material across my torso, as if the lightning had upon contact wrapped itself around me like a coil of molten chains. My grandfather's coat was ruined, and my shoes strangely were smoking. When I took them off, I saw that these soles were black, irreparably charred. Feeling beneath my smoldering clothing, I found my skin unusually hot to the touch, but not badly damaged. I was most concerned by my inability to hear in my left ear. Above me, hidden by the now temptuous darkness, thunder reverberated amidst the darkly fulsome clouds, and I realized that I could only hear its rage through my right ear. The partial deafness was also accompanied by an inability to properly focus on one spot for too long, as if sight was something to be achieved through effort, and not naturally granted. Panic set in at the obvious neurological damage and I tried to stand but found that I couldn't feel or move my legs. Debilitated, terrified with panic steadily mounting, 
I tried to think of what to do. I knew that calling out would be utterly pointless, the two nearest homes being miles away, and the road having been untraveled all morning. I also felt with a superstitious sensitivity that the sky was somehow sentient, and it would hurl its fury at me again if I gave evidence that I had survived its first folly. And so I kept quiet and sat there helplessly, while the firmament boiled blackly above me. I think I had been on the verge of passing out when she appeared, wreathed in that cosmic light, which was somehow both comforting and horrifying in its envulgence. She was tall, inhumanly tall, and I remember cowering even lower to the ground, practically coming to rest on my back, when I finally made out the immensity of her stature. Standing at around 12 feet, she loomed formidably over me, and I thank that infernal lightning strike for inhibiting my capacity for sight, because I'm sure that I would have lost my mind had I been able to see certain other, only implied aspects of her overall appearance. Seemingly naked, with immaculately toned muscles wrapped tautly in ivory flesh, she knelt over me and wrapped me up in her powerful arms. She was effortlessly lifted from the ground and held against her bosom like a straw doll in a child's embrace, or a child in a mother's. Cradled so, I was carried for some time across the field, while the sky voiced its immemorial ire, and I saw other forms, other giants, going every which way around us. These two were veiled, enshrouded or otherwise armored by an ultra-mundane light, with pale and beautifully unblemished skin beneath. They paid no attention to us, and went about their business with a slow, dance-like grace, as if enchanted by some communal dream. It didn't occur to me to try and communicate with my savior. I had been so shaken by the lightning strike and was so enraptured by the subsequent salvation that my mind could only manage to direct me to silently observe and marvel at the sights. Apparently reaching our destination, I was set down on the damp grass again and saw beyond the shimmering form of the giant woman, a sky slightly less perilous. The clouds were still bloated and dark, but there was no electrical activity to be seen. The thunder was something heard off in the distance. The hail fell infrequently and innocuously. My savior smiled, and my body was filled with a restoring warmth, even as my heart was seized by dread at the sight of her more than monstrous maw, and the six eerily lustrous eyes above it. It was the face of something that had never been human, and would never truly understand human nature and our capacity for fear. A being of an entirely different mold, even her hair which fell goldenly past her bare shoulders, seemed somehow unwholesomely alien to my human sensibilities. I was distracted from potentially discovering some other inspiration of horror in her appearance by the return of feeling to my legs, sound to my ear, and the steadying of my eyesight. I blinked, wriggled my toes in my half-burnt socks and turned my left ear toward the booming cannon shots of the thunder behind me, and I was filled with an indescribable joy. My towering guardian, seeing me restored, 
and then turning her attention to the sky, and mine was brought there as well, by the sound of a great roaring. This noise was not the concussive, darkly echoic sound of atmospheric violence, but a howl of bestial life. There was a sentience behind it, however feral. A collection of clouds above were suddenly lit up, and I saw highlighted in their center a shadowy form, dragon-like and massive, with broad black wings, and a segmented tail the length of its body. And then, like a fast-turning searchlight, the scope of illumination was transferred from the great beast and came trailing downward. And I realized with a heart-sinking sureness that the light was not something born of the storm and had just been hurled landward by the dragon. And sure enough, that searing javelin came shooting out of the heavens, streaking whitely, and I cried out like an animal caught in the snare of a hunter. But without hesitation or any suggestions of fear, my stoic guardian reached up and caught the bolt in her hand, and with her seemingly empyrean power, reconstituted it, giving it the same spectral tinge and heavenly nature as her own cloak of light. And then, with little time spent visibly charting the flight path of the winged fiend, she hurled the bolt back at it. The brilliantly golden spear spent perhaps half a second in the air before striking the cloud-enshrouded dragon, and I watched, awestruck, as it plummeted from its cloud enclosure. And as if to prevent some calamitous result of its contact with land, more bolts, hundreds of them, went soaring skyward, thrown by those other giants who we had quietly passed. They all struck the clipped beast with a sky-shaking simoninity, and the thing exploded completely, becoming a haze of twinkling particles. Its disintegration then had a wondrous effect on the sky, as if the heart of that foul storm had been destroyed. The preternaturally and darkened sky was then relieved of its gloom. The storm's cessation was as sudden as its arrival. When these sun rays were again allowed to grace the earth, my protector turned to me once more and offered another one of her bizarrely, horrifically alien smiles. Not wanting to be rude, I offered one back, but quickly directed my gaze towards the now beautiful sky, so that her image was not thoroughly or irreversibly imprinted on my mind. And without ever having spoken a word, the woman, that titanic, cryptically angelic being, then disappeared in a shimmer of light, leaving me alone in the field. I sat there for nearly an hour, marveling at the beauty of the sunlit country and then laughed, returning to my home. I put my grandfather's scorched coat into a chest with other valuable things, as a permanent reminder of that momentous, terrifying, and providential experience, knowing that the burns in my body will in time heal. I was an apartment building inspector for nine years. Here's one of my stories, written by Forgotten Collector. Out of the dozen or so properties that I help inspect, there wasn't a single building I dreaded more than this place. It had been well over two years since I had been called to the Hollyway Apartments. It was an old sort of refurbished three-story building, 
deep in western downtown, among the other derelict, half-abandoned high-rises. It was a somewhat urgent call from the manager of that property. A tenant had skipped out on rent for the month and refused to answer his phone, email, or even the door. Apparently, he had changed the lock at some point or added a new one on. Either way, the manager couldn't get in, and the neighbors had filed complaints. Smell complaints, noise complaints. Even from the tenants above and below him on the first and third floor had something to say. Like always, the manager didn't want to get the police involved yet. So me and another inspector got called in to deal with it and see if the police were necessary. I've worked with the guy before. George was his name. I could already make out his distinguishable blue Camry parked beside the towering building. This building was old. One of our oldest. Light tan brickwork covered most of the building. Coated in decades of dark water stains emanating from each window or gutter. Barely six o'clock and early the sun was well behind the horizon. In the looming darkness... I could see each window above. The interior lights silhouetting whatever unique makeshift curtains the tenants had put up. Mostly the easily recognizable dipshade of a thin bedsheet held up with thumbtacks. I had parked across from George. The stocky balding man was waiting in the driver's seat, leaning deep into his phone before realizing that I had shown up. About time you showed up. He said in his usual agitated nervousness. Hey, six o'clock traffic. It's terrible this side of town. Yeah, well, at least we don't have to deal with it after we get this over with. He finished typing something out on his phone before pocketing it. Why are we even down here? Don't they call the police for things like these? George said as we made our way to the building's main entrance. The original coloring on the surface level walls was hardly discernible anymore caked in a dark brown soot. I already asked about it and the manager is clear. He doesn't want police involved if he can help it, I said. Oh, so we work for this guy now. Look, we just gotta ask a few questions, crack open the door and figure out what happened. The guy probably just ditched down. You know the types who live in these places. Oh, and what about the smell then? They told you about the complaints, right? Even the people on the third floor were complaining about the smells, the noises. Manager said they stopped a few days ago. Besides, if it's anything other than a month's worth of rotting food, then we'll have every reason to call the cops no matter what this guy says. We made it to the front door. The awning was tattered and stained. One of the doors had been spray-painted utility markings covering the glass and was obviously in no state to open. Both sides of the double glass door were dark and clouded, and the inside wasn't much better. Unlike a lot of other low-income apartments, this one actually had a lobby, an underused relic of its past, but still a lobby. The original ceiling had been replaced with drop tiles, covered in dark water stains, some of them missing or knocked out of place. Furniture had been taken out. But dark spots stained the vinyl flooring where they sat for God knows how long. A single light was turned on throughout the entire lobby floor, and the back office behind the reception desk. Donald, the owner of this building, 
sat hunched over his phone and a stack of papers, looking up at us almost in a fight-or-flight reaction once he had heard the front door open. Oh, he took a breath before standing up. You boys are finally here. He reached out, shook both our hands before frantically searching his desk for something. Ah, here we go. He produced a small piece of paper and handed it to George. That's the apartment number, 2B5, and the numbers of the neighbors who made the complaints on the same floor. When did the complaint start? I asked. The fat man shrugged. You'll have to ask the neighbors. You didn't report the complaints to this office, George said. I don't report complaints to the office. They go straight to the office. Office didn't say anything to me, he continued. Office doesn't care about noise complaints. I only got involved when the smell got bad. But then the smell went away. Problem solved. But then he was late with the rent. We both shook our head in impassive agreement. And why haven't you called the police? George asked. I got you guys, the office, all that. Why risk lowering the value of this place even more with more reels of police around here if they don't need to be? You find something that merits the cops, then you tell me, but not a moment before. Donald finished with a raised, dramatic voice as he made his way back down the hall, disappearing into his office. Well, that's that. Let's get started then. I said to George as we made our way to the elevator. It was just as old as the building. A rusted sliding door covered in chipped gray paint creaked open with the sound of a scraping metal. A whirring of the elevator's pulley followed, and the doors revealed a small fluorescent light illuminated a compartment lined with chain screen and false wood paneling. The light flickered. Let's take the stairs, George said, turning a 180 to these stairs across. Already five stuff up by the time that I started to follow. We had passed the first floor rooms already, and they were somewhat clean, with what appeared to be a coat of paint that was only a few years old, instead of a few decades. The second floor was a different story. As we crested the final steps and turned into the second floor hallway, a wave passed over us. A wave of thick air, heavy with dust and the smell of mildew and rotting something. George pinched his nose as I rubbed my eyes, the air immediately burning and irritating them. Uh, the smell, George said. Could that be the apartment? You think they would have complained more if it was all that different from normal? Well, the manager said the smell stopped, so we can assume this is the normal aroma of the place, I guess. George said as we started down the hall. A seemingly endless hallway, lined with dark and stained red carpet and equally neglected beige walls. Thin wood panel doors marked every apartment, each chipped and splintered here and there. From a distance, the apartment in question was obvious. A bulgy mass stuck out from the base of the doorway, leaning against it like it was trying to get in. A mound of packages, boxes and puffed envelopes shoved against the door, dusty with some scattered around the carpet, covered in boot prints. So, this was the mail they were talking about, George said, kneeling down to inspect one of the damaged packages. What do you mean? 
In his original message, Donald said the tenant had a lot of mail piling up at the front. Eventually got sick of it and just had the custodians dump it here. Are there dates on any of them? I asked. No, but look at this. George picked up a cheap, chalky cardboard box and showed me the label. It was some kind of foreign language, Chinese I think. The only thing that was in English on any of the packages was the address of the building. See, this one too. He handed me another. A heavy envelope, this one labeled entirely in Russian. They all look like this, everything. No English labels, no commercial packaging, nothing. George said as he dramatically sifted through the packages, checking as many as he could. You don't think it's... I asked, trying to feel the contents of the envelope without opening it. George looked at me for a second, pondering the possibility of it. No, no one's that stupid. Plus, they're too big and too heavy. Well, maybe we should open one. As me and George considered the idea, a door opened across from us. One of the neighbors. A heavy-set woman with her hair wrapped in a towel with a look of perpetual irritation on her face. Who are you? She snapped. Oh, we're with the property manager taking care of... this. I answered while motioning to the packages. It's about time someone dealt with this, she yelled, as if talking to someone inside her apartment. Were you one of the neighbors who wrote a complaint? George asked, standing up and dusting his jeans off. You're right I am. She continued, trailing off into a tangent about the lazy landlord and the smell. The woman continued shouting before we could get her name, Sandra. She had made the original smell complaint saying the room smelled like a landfill about two weeks ago before slowly going away. When we asked if she knew anything about the tenant, all she said was, probably just a crackhead, while shutting the door to her apartment. As this conversation ended, another door opened a few yards the opposite way. An almost skeletal figure peered out from a dimly lit apartment. Shifting lights from her TV silhouetted a frail old woman, shrouded in a thin veil of darkness. Are you here to find Jeremy? She asked, voice hardly louder than the television. What? George asked, stepping a bit closer but keeping his distance. Jeremy, he's been missing for so long now. I hope you police will find him. She spoke with a struggling croak, closing the door slowly before either of us could say anything. Someone's missing? I asked George as he shot a wide-eyed glance at me. She's talking about Jerry Baker. A voice appeared from behind us, an open door where a lanky man leaned against the frame. George and I shared another quick glance as to confirm neither of us heard him open the door. Young, young guy lives down the hall. Used to visit her often, I think. The stranger said, almost as if he was talking to himself. Stopped showing up about a month ago. Probably just skipped town like this guy did. Oh well, he said, turning back into his apartment without another word. George and I continued to share glances as the man carefully clicked his door shut. Well, I guess we've questioned all the neighbors, I said. 
Great, can't wait to be back here in a week to solve another case of the missing crackhead. George said as he knelt back down, moving packages out of the doorway. So, are we going to open one of these things or what? He asked me, holding a small box. White label filled with fading Chinese characters. I said nothing, still motioning for him to go for it. George cut the tape with a small pocket knife carefully, pulling the contents out as to not damage anything. A long skin-colored object sat in a cloudy plastic bag. George squished it a bit before tearing the plastic open and holding out the thing inside. A foot? He said perplexed. Part of one, I think. George held it closer to me. It obviously wasn't a real foot. It was hard and squishy in the same time with a bit of shininess, silicone plastics, some kind of prosthetic or something. George quickly picked up and tore open another package. Same thing. A set of three fake fingers this time. There's no way every single one of these packages is a fake body part. George said exasperated. Let's just get these packages out of the way and get inside so we can get this thing over with. I said, stopping George from reaching for another package. Right, help me move these, he said. The two of us scooting and kicking the boxes away from the door until it was clear enough. Try the key, I said, and George took the apartment key from his pocket and tried the lock. The lock released. The door opened. A chain stopped at a few inches in. Hey, look out, it's just a chain, I said slowly pressing my shoulder into the door, pulling out a flathead and reaching around inside until I could slide the chain lock off the latch. Immediately, a wave of air hit us, air that was different from the musty hallway, a familiar scent of an old dumpster, the light aroma of rotting meat, and fresh air. It stung, but it was fresh air compared to the rest of this place. George and I placed on light, breathing respirators before opening the door completely. Inside was confined with oppressive darkness, save for the timid glow of a single street lamp emanating from outside the apartment's only window. An open window. A broken open window. A gust of cool air passed and the drab curtains fluttered a bit. A sudden billow of freezing air forcing itself into the room. Small shards of broken glass littered the floor, reflecting the light of that street lamp, glittering as I moved into the room. Darkness covered and silhouetted everything. Nothing was identifiable in it. Every inch of the table or counter space, every crevice or corner, everything was filled with some ambiguous mass. I slid my boots across the floor, moving anything out of the way while feeling for a light switch. Flick. Nothing. George had closed the door as I toyed with the light switch. But as the door closed and the light of the hallway disappeared, I realized I couldn't see any other lights in the room whatsoever. Not even these small LEDs on a TV or a coffee maker. It was completely black. Overlaying with a weak orange hue of the dying alley lamp just outside of the window. Nothing? George asked me. It seems like the power's out, I said, starting to search my pockets for a small flashlight. Well, the manager can't do that. He didn't shut it off. No, but somebody did. 
I turned the small, weak flashlight on. George pulled out his as well. We should just get the heck out of here and call the cops already, George said, mostly to himself. The flashlight seemed only to illuminate the dust and debris that filled the air around them. A thick, dusty fog filling the whole room. Blocking out light and blurring my vision as we started to scan the surroundings. A picture of the room started to form. There were things everywhere. Every inch of contour and table space was filled with wrappers, tools, and notes and pictures. The floor was littered with packaging. Large black garbage bags shoved into each corner. Packing wrappers spilling out of them. Stains covered everything. Dark stains. The peeling laminate countertop was caked in a thick layer of... Something. Something dark. Hey, hey, get in here quick. George said from across the room. I switched my gaze over to him. He was starting into another room, maybe the bedroom. Flashlight was fixed on something. What is it? George didn't answer. He simply stepped aside, trying not to gag. It was a body. A body that hardly smelled or looked like a body anymore. I'm telling the manager to get the dang cops. George mumbled, ducking back into the kitchen, leaving me to stare at this corpse alone. The dim light and dusty air didn't allow me to get a close enough look at it, but I could tell even from a distance that this body wasn't decayed. It was eaten. Its face was gone. Only bone was left in the arms. Both legs were gone, and it seemed like it was disemboweled. But it looked empty, hollowed out. George made his way back as I started to scan the rest of the room. There were multiple dining tables against the wall, set up like operating tables. Holes cut in the edges where restraints hung. A large strap in the upper corner, where I assume a neck would be. What the heck was this nut job doing in here? And is that him? George quipped, staring at the same table I was, trying not to glimpse the corpse again. The body parts, the prosthetics, I said. You don't think. I looked at George. George was looking at something else, staring at something else. Oh, look at this one, he said, moving to a table at the other end of the room, tipped over, splintered, restraints snapped off. A large stain covered the entire thing, the unmistakable deep red that grew darker towards the center. George moved without saying a word, jogging out of the room quickly like he was onto something. Hey, did you talk to the manager? I shouted to him as he left the room. Yeah, yeah, he said he'd call the police, George said. Moving up to the broken window, shards cracking beneath his shoes. Holy crap, look at that. He said while looking outside the window, down toward the street below. And this, see here. He pointed towards blood on the window's remaining glass. I looked outside the window to see a distinguishable stain across the pavement. Dark and dried, but there wasn't a body. George and I moved back into the other room, past the body, inspecting for the certain proof of identity that was on both our minds. Here, look, see. I knew it. How the heck did I know it? 
George handed me a few pieces of paper, wiping the sweat from his bald spot. That old lady wasn't losing it entirely. The kid went missing, he continued. The pieces of paper were mostly blurry pictures, cheap Polaroids and printouts of this man, all labeled in Sharpie with the name Jeremy. A few of the pictures had a different name on them. Despite being the same man, they were labeled with Matilda. We gotta find this kid. He's probably hurt, I said, George pacing. Trying not to look at a disturbed the corpse lying just a few feet away. The cops will be here soon. Hopefully, probably. Who knows how long they'll take to respond to this dump, he said. Exactly. We might be able to find him in time. Who knows how long it's been already. You think it was him who dropped out of the window? Why the heck would he do that if the door isn't locked from inside? George asked himself. Let's just check out the rest of the room quickly, and we'll go down and find where he could have ended up, I said, quickly scanning across the room. The beige wall where the corpse leaned was stained heavily with smears of red. Dirty operating tools were scattered across the floor. On the other side of the room, there was some kind of workbench or a dresser. Laid on top of it were limbs, wrapped in paper. I could make out two arms and two legs, but they were clean and I couldn't see any blood. More prosthetics. Alright, there's nothing left for us in here. Let's go downstairs before we tamper with any more evidence or whatever the heck you'd call this, George said, already moving towards the front door. This is the, George thought for a second, west side of the building, right? I think so, yeah. Then the window that he fell from would be on the alley side of the building then. George said as we made our way out of the second floor hallway, down the stairs and into the lobby. I'm not sure how long we were upstairs, but night had fallen now. The lobby was dark and empty. Wind and the sound of distant traffic filled the empty void as we stepped outside. A few street lamps piercing the oppressive darkness and the empty roads. The alleyway was long. A narrow stretch set between the apartments and some kind of abandoned office building or warehouse. Both buildings towered three stories high. A single flickering street lamp between the two served to illuminate the alley. On the dark stained concrete, we could barely make it out until we were right over it. Dried in dark red, a splatter of blood that could have easily been mistaken for an oil slick. Christ, that's bad. How the heck did he get up from that? George mumbled. Then where did he end up at? I said, trailing off, trying to find other stains or markings. Look at this, George said kneeling beside the concrete curb of the abandoned building. A large stain spread on the concrete like someone dragged a body across it. It became harder to see as it trailed closer to the old steel door cracked open. We shared a glance as I shined my light over the door, the knob broken and dangling from a single screw. There was an apprehensive look on George's face, and I could feel the sweat in my palms as my fingertips touched the cold metal door. Gently swinging it open, the metal scraping slowly against concrete until it was open enough to get inside. We were met with a stretching dark hallway, 
debris and old furniture lining the walls. My flashlight barely reaching a few feet in front of me. We could still see marks of red along the floor and some of the old dust that blocked the hallway and we could hear something too. Besides the wind outside and the crunch of debris beneath our boots, there was nothing. Complete silence. Not the sound of traffic nor the hum of fluorescent lights. The overwhelming silence only made noises all the more obvious, no matter how quiet the noise was. Did you hear that? I asked, turning toward one of these side rooms that was completely empty. Dust was thicker in that empty room. I swore something emanated from there. A sound. A clacking sound. Hear what? Uh, like something fell, maybe. I turned away, finding the trail again. Just the building, I guess. Maybe there's raccoons or something in here. George mumbled with an unsettled voice. Another sound, loud enough that we could both hear it. Both see the dust kick up at the very end of the hallway. Clacking. Like something was dragging or tossing a bag of plastic toys. Both of us shined our light down the hall and froze, kept moving, slowly inching our way towards the origin of the noise, the dust cloud that slowly drifted away, joining with the rest of the musty thick air. The blood trail led directly to the noise and into a side room at the end of the hallway. We were about 15 feet away from the door when we heard it again, the clacking, clamoring of something. The door was off to the side of the hall, cracked open slightly, the opening facing the end of the room where something laid in the darkest against the wall. Our lights barely penetrated the darkness, but we could see something there. A large, unmoving thing bundled against the wall. The weighted metallic door slid open slowly with the push of my foot, my flashlighting gaze not moving from that ambiguous pile. We inched closer. The light began to hit it. Color formed, dirty porcelain white and the bright glossy red of fresh blood. Leaning there against the wall, bunched in on itself. I didn't know what it was at first, but I knew it was humanoid. The light revealed a circular, pure white visage that slouched over what I assumed as a body. It was a body. It was a human torso and a human leg in that pile. The torso was not attached to the leg it was holding. It was holding it with unmoving porcelain, silicone arms and hands. Plastic legs stitched into the hips of that man's torso. Arms bracketed to the shoulder. The leg it held was not plastic. It was not glossy silicone. It was a person, and it was covered in bite marks. Its face was there too. That white visage mask was attached to it and covering something, but not where the mouth might be. There, it was dark red, almost black and dripping. Above the gaping mouth printed on that dirty white mask was writing. A single word printed near the forehead. It was too dirty, too small to make out the whole thing, but it started with an M. It did not move. I stepped away from the thing, the shock hitting me, overpowering whatever morbid curiosity I had, become overwhelmed with and George was gone, out. He had left at some point and I didn't blame him. I tried to look at the dead thing closer, 
Some sick freak's idea of a joke to play with a dead man's body. To pose him like this. Did the tenant do this? Or was this the tenant? Whose body was inside the apartment then? Heavy footsteps behind me snapped me back. And I could see the familiar flashing of red and blue lights outside. Reflecting off the metal door into the dark hallway. George led the pair of officers into the warehouse as I stood waiting outside of the doorway, radio chatter echoing through the hall. The thing was gone. The room was empty, completely empty. A blotched red stain against the wall and floor remained, but that thing was gone. Who had moved it? I heard the sirens and wanted to make sure they saw this, George said, his voice trailing off to a halt as he looked into the room. Saw its lacking of bodies. The police saw the blood, the markings, and soon after they checked the apartment. They questioned us and let us leave. We answered truthfully and never came within 10 miles of that apartment building ever again. Months passed and the thing finally slipped away from my mind until a short newscast reminded me. Reminded me that the man Jeremy Baker was confirmed dead but still missing. Some of his body parts found in the apartment, but never his body, never his head. I never believed my dad's stories about the deerskinner, and then I brought my kids to the lake. Written by Do Not Share. I never believed my dad. He's the kind of guy that is constantly poking or scaring or finding a way to get the kids going. Growing up, we spent summers camping in northern Wisconsin. Eventually, my parents settled on their favorite lake and they bought property. Throughout all those camping trips, dad always messed with his sons. As my brother and I looked up at the stars at night, he would tell us that he was from Mars and that he was waiting to get home or he would tell us that he had to chase off a grizzly bear last night because it was about to attack us. Anything do scare us a bit. But there was one story that always stuck with me. The story of the deerskinner. Just off the road, there is a dirt road hidden behind overgrown bushes. About a quarter mile down the road sits an old shed on a hill. The front yard was filled with overgrown grass and burned out cars. Not an unusual thing for northern Wisconsin, except for one vehicle, a school bus. Dad warned us of the man that lived there, the deerskinner. In Wisconsin, hunting is a huge part of the culture. The one thing they don't tell you about hunting is what it takes to process a deer. Peeling back the fur, slicing the fat away from the muscles, sawing the legs off. It's an exhausting, messy ordeal. This man on the hill was a deerskinner. You drop off your big buck and he'll take care of processing the deer. Taking off its pajamas, as he would describe. You give him 75 bucks and a few days and come back to a cooler filled with venison. But the story of the deerskinner isn't about a man living off the land with a side gig. It was a warning about what he did in the off-season. 
On rainy nights in the campground, Dad would whisper stories of the deer skinner, a man who sits alone, waiting until hunting season. Overcome by desire when summer comes around and the campground is full, he would take children from the campground and they would go missing. He would return to his house on the hill and process the children and then dump their bones in the lake. I try not to think about the school bus that sits in his yard. Dad would always take his stories a bit too far and Mom would scold him for it. With a chuckle or two, he would sip his beer and tell her that he was just warning the kids. I always chalked Dad's stories up to just scaring his kids around the campfire. I never really believed in the deer skinner. And then I brought my kids to the lake. Life comes at you fast. I graduated from high school, went to college, got engaged, married, and suddenly I have two kids of my own. My parents had bought land on the lake, built a house, and moved there full time. Now, our out-of-state license plates cruised through northern Wisconsin. As the four-lane highway turned into a two-lane, then to a country road, and finally a dirt path barely wide enough for two vehicles to sweep past, I look in the rearview mirror. My sons watch the tall trees zip past in the window until we come upon the road with the overgrown bushes. I look down the familiar side road. That's where the Skinner lives, I say, smirking and echoing my father. My wife Penny shoots me a glare. Elaine is barely ten but sharp like his mother. Jacob, my older son, wears headphones continuing to ignore us like he has for the last five hours. Typical 13-year-old. Who's the Skinner? Elaine replies. Nobody. Penny shoots back before I have a chance to scar them. We curve around to Ben and the bushes fade away. A few miles later, we reach the end of the road and pull onto the thin gravel driveway. My SUV rolls down the driveway, past the garage and finally stops. We made it, Penny announces. I unbuckle my seatbelt and the four of us climb out. Finally here. I stare up at my parents' home. Long gone are the days of the flat tire camper. The mice-ridden trailer had to be dragged out on its axles. It's since then been replaced by a small three-bedroom A-frame. Lane runs down the hill first, a pillow wrapped in his arms. He skips right past the colorfully painted rocks. Rocks that I painted when I was his age. A painted brown and green turtle looks up at me. Its smile faded from decades in the sun. I pry a reluctant Jacob from the car. We settle down after getting all the hugs and pleasantries out of the way. Dinner as it was cods and delicacy. Bratwurst, beans, and watermelon. We immediately start joking and catching up. It feels great to be back with family, but I can't shake this feeling that dad is distant. The sun sets and we light up a campfire. Penny and the kids work on s'mores, and dad and I put down a few beers. Mom sips whatever mystery beverage she keeps in her red cup. As I look out at the quiet lake, a loon wails. Fireflies dance in the night. The memories rush in. I look over at Dad. Whatever happened to the deer skinner? 
I snicker. Penny immediately looks up at me, her eyes speaking loud and clear. Don't you dare. What are you talking about? Dad replies. The story you used to tell us as kids about the deerskinner. What's a deerskinner? Lane asks. Nothing. Your father is just being goofy. Penny interrupts. Watch your marshmallow. Lane's stick and marshmallow are engulfed in a flame. Hey, give that here, Dad says, and he blows out Lane's torch. Perfectly cooked. A charcoal marshmallow drips down the stick. You have to remember the deer skinner. You told us that story all the time as kids. Remember, he lived in that shack on the hill with the school bus. I say, not letting it go. Dad shrugs, looks off in the forest and sips his beer. I think the place you remember burned down, he says, feeling distant as ever. I drop the conversation and go back to tending the fire. As the logs burn, the group shrinks. The kids head to bed first, and then Mom, followed shortly by Penny. As I adjust the fire, I look up at Dad. He stares into the flames. Is everything okay? You're quiet, I ask him. A long pause. It feels like he's contemplating something, but instead he stands, tosses his empty beer can on the ground, and then finally makes eye contact with me. Keep those kids close. Don't let them wander into the woods. Mandy goes inside. I sit back as a log rolls over, sending sparks into the sky. Is this just another way Dad is messing with me? The next morning, Penny and I are in the bathroom brushing our teeth. Penny spits into the sink. The freaking deerskinner? Are you kidding me? They're way too young to hear about that. I was half their age when Dad started telling me that story. Yeah, look how you turned out. You don't want our kids turning out like me, I smile back. Penny glares, not amused. She tosses her toothbrush down and that's the end of that conversation. Mom is already two coffees deep by the time we stumble into the living room. I pour myself a cup with a splash of milk. Lane and Penny are enjoying pancakes. I barely get it to my lips before. How about a hike? Mom, I'm barely a... Can we visit the campground? Lane asks. I want to visit the beach. The kids heard about the campground from when I was a kid and we had first started coming to the lake. If there's a place that hasn't changed, well, it's the campground. You even pump your own water from an old hand pump. I have to show you my trail. Mom says before I have a chance to answer. I've got the whole thing marked out. I look over at Jacob on the couch. He munches on his pancake with his earbuds in. He didn't even hear the interaction. I go over to him and pull one out. Hey, we're going to the beach after lunch. Have fun, Jacob snarks. You don't want to come with? No. He puts his earbud back in and I shrug. After breakfast, Penny, Lane, Mom, and I head to the campground. We walk down the road and head toward my mom's trailhead. Lane and Penny are up ahead. Lane's bright red backpack bobbles as we walk down the road. The Rupert family finally sold that plot. They got 315 for it, if you can believe that. 
Can't imagine what that puts our house at. Place is changing, I reply. A bit different than when you were a kid, right? She smiles back. It still has that same charm, though. We take a few more steps when I can't help but ask. So, what was the deal with Dad last night? Well, I don't know what you mean. Mom looks over at me. Her eyes beg me not to pry any further. There it is. Lane yells as he spots one of Mom's trail markers. Hey, you found it, she yells back. I hung these on the path to the campground. Makes it easy to follow here and back, Mom tells him. I kneel next to Lane. Hey, buddy, if you get lost in the woods, just look for the ribbons and they will lead you right back. Lane smiles and runs ahead. Penny does her best to keep up with him. Hey, looks like he's got some northern Wisconsin in him after all, Mom says with a smile. And then the four of us enter the woods. The hike is mostly open forest, and the lake is just on the hill. We crunch through fallen leaves. Birds sing to us as we cross the forest. I watch Lane hop over a fallen tree. He seems to be enjoying the adventures of the forest. It's about a half mile hike to the campground. We're about halfway there when we hear a crunch in the woods. We both stop and look. A deer, a doe to be exact, broadside. We lock eyes and I stare at her. A moment passes when I hear another crunch. Behind the doe stands a fawn still with its spots. It takes a few more steps, lifting its legs a bit too high, clearly still learning how to use its body. Penny and Lane look at the deer ahead of us. We've seen her a few times, Mom whispers. Normally she has two babies with her. I hope something didn't happen to the other one. They tend to show back up. I reply. And just like that, the deer is spooked, and it darts deeper into the forest. The fawn does its best to keep pace. A few seconds later, they're both gone. We enter the campground through an empty campsite. It's the end of June, so the campground should fill up with 4th of July campers soon. We step onto the gravel road and walk down the middle of the street waving to a middle-aged couple as we pass. Lane turns around and runs up to Penny, whispers something in her ear. Penny looks at Mom. Bathroom? I smile. Hey, just up ahead around the corner, there's an outhouse. Oh, really? Lane looks back at me with a big smile. Hey, go ahead, buddy, we'll catch up. Lane runs up ahead and out of sight. He's a good kid. Mom says. Reminds me of you. Yeah, I was less of a little crap, though. I reply. No, no, you weren't, she says back, making Penny laugh. We round the corner and find the outhouse. The casual talk continues as we wait for Lane to finish. Mom points out the different campsites that we used to stay in, then shares an embarrassing story of when my little brother ran through the campground naked. As the laughter subsides, the three of us realize that something doesn't feel quite right. You okay in there? I ask. No response. I wait another minute or so. Lane, you alright, bud? Still nothing. I look back at Penny and Mom, both confused. 
I walk up to the outhouse and tug on the door. It's empty. He's not here. What? Penny asks. He's not here. Lane! Penny calls out, checking around the outhouse. Lane, where are you? She whips the door open again, assuming that maybe I missed him in the five-foot-wide outhouse. Where is he? I shake my head. I... I don't know. We spend the next hour searching around the campground, asking anyone that's there if they've seen him. I try to remember his outfit. I can get the blue shirt, but it was a Packers hat or a Bucks hat. And a red backpack. I remember the red backpack. It's late afternoon now, and our voices have gone hoarse. Everyone in the campground knows who we are, and is likely sick of hearing us yell. We've exhausted the campground. He isn't here. We head back through the woods, following the same marked path. Maybe he followed the path back, Penny says, hoping for the best. Maybe is all I can bring myself to reply. We get back to the house and go up to the garage. Where's Lane? Dad asks. Penny wipes away some tears and Mom heads inside. He, he disappeared, I say. What do you mean disappeared? When we got to the campground, he ran ahead to use the bathroom and then he was gone. Dad stares at me, knowing more than he wants to say. He looks off at the forest for a moment and then stands. I'm going to call the police, Penny says. She goes into the house. I wipe my forehead and take a deep breath. I should help, I say, turning away from Dad. Get in the truck, he replies. I turn back toward him, and he snatches his keys from the workbench. Dad and I drive in silence. He turns down a side road that I'm not too familiar with. Where are we going? I ask. Dad says nothing. The asphalt fades into gravel. The truck spits up a cloud of dust behind us. So think that you can't see something coming if you tried. And then I see the overgrown bushes. The truck slows. Dad turns down the road. The tree canopy covers the road. Sunlight flickers in between the leaves. It feels as if we are driving in a tunnel. Eventually, the forest gives way to a field. I look up and notice a late afternoon storm and rolling in. And then the truck eases to a stop. He looks up a grassy hill. At the top, a wooden shack sits. The familiar bus is in the background. This is the Skinner's place. I thought you said it burned down, I say. And Dad takes a moment. Stares at the school bus in the rebuilt shed. It did. Because I burned it down. The moment lingers. My dad not only committed arson for some reason, but the building that he burned is back. We stare at the shed for a moment, when my dad reaches into the center console and pulls out his handgun. Get the shotgun from the back. What are we doing? I reply. Getting your son back. My dad climbs from the truck. I hesitate. Dad. He looks up at me while pulling the shotgun from the back. Yeah. He says while loading shells into the gun. I don't know if this is a good idea. Well then stay here. 
He closes the door and starts up the hill. After a moan of hesitation, I realize I really don't have a choice and I follow him. It doesn't take long for us to get up the hill. At the top, the small house somehow feels even smaller. Let's go around back, Dad whispers, to see if we can see anything. He crouches down and we dip below the dark window. Dad, I don't think anyone is here. He's here. My dad nods inside. I peek into the window and stare long enough to see the movement of a figure pass in front of the doorway. I dip back down. Did he see me? I look back in the direction of my dad, but he's already gone. Dad, I whisper. No response. Dad, where are you? And then I hear a crunch around back. I rush toward the sound and hook around the corner of the building. No dad, but the back door is open. I creep toward the doorway and poke my head in. The first thing that hits me is the smell. Dead and rotting flesh. It burns my nostrils and I instinctively pull my shirt over my mouth. I haven't eaten all day so I don't really have to worry about losing my lunch. I step into the house and find myself inside of a disheveled breezeway. Poorly mounted deer heads hang on the wall. I glaze past it but find something truly disturbing. Along the far wall, a bloody workbench. A deer leg lays half skinned. A handsaw sliced into its ankle. I try not to think about what else had been cut up on that workbench. I inch through the doorway into what I think is the kitchen. Dad! I yell again in a loud, raspy whisper. Still nothing. The kitchen, if you can call it that, went through the destruction phase of a renovation, but it never went any further. If Dad had burned this place down ten years ago, it sure doesn't look like it was rebuilt recently. I round another corner and find my dad standing over a thin, bearded man. The Skinner. My dad holds the pistol to his head. Where's my grandson? Dad, what are you? He cuts me off before I can finish. This man took your son. I look down at the man on his knees. He's frail. Not one that could easily take a kid. He looks more than just old, likely sick, and blood pours from his nose. I, I don't know what you're talking about, the Skinner replies. Please, please don't shoot me. Then tell me where he is, my dad yells back. Dad, we should go. My dad looks up at me, fire in his eyes. We look at each other for a moment, and then my dad lowers his gun. As my dad does this, I think I've convinced him to finally leave. The frown man lifts a finger and points at the door. Downstairs. I look up at my dad. We're both thinking the same thing. Go downstairs, my dad says. I'll stay here. I gave him one more look. You sure? He nods. I inch away from the confrontation and toward the staircase. Downstairs is much like the above, an utter cluttered mess. A single light bulb illuminates the basement. On the other end of the room, a red steel door. I walk around it, take a deep breath and put my hand on the handle. As I push the door open, a giant mounted deer head stares at me. Small candles flicker in place of where their eyeball should be. 
Its twelve pointed horns cast giant shadows up the wall. It's some sort of shrine. I look around the rest of the room. Other deer artifacts, hooves, fur, more horns. The room isn't cluttered or disgusting. It's designed. I look around the room, taking in the details, but that's when I notice it. The red backpack. Lane's backpack. It sits under the giant deer head. I lean down and wrap my fingers around the backpack strap. It is Lane's. I rush back upstairs. Dad's still standing over the deer skinner. I show Dad the backpack. He killed him, I yelled. He's dead. Without hesitation, I shove my dad back and pull the shotgun to my shoulder. Anger has completely taken over. The Skinner quakes. He knows what's coming next. I... The man shudders, but I don't give him a chance to finish. I pull the trigger. A few minutes later, my dad and I sit back in the truck. We watch the flames burn. The Skinner's house slowly turning to ash. We'll never speak of this again, my dad quietly says, and I nod. As my dad pulls the truck into the drive, my phone rings. It's Penny. Hello. He's home, she says. Elaine's back. If your doorbell rings in the middle of the night, don't answer. Written by Sleepless in Suburbia. I should have learned this lesson four years ago, when it would have made a difference. But I was young and foolish, and I was on exchange in a foreign country. And like much of what I learned at the time, it slid into half-forgotten memory, only to be painfully jolted back into consciousness at the most inopportune moments. Because it has become too easy to forget the things that I should remember. Four years ago, I was in Germany doing a thesis on brick gothic architecture. The university there had been kind enough to arrange accommodation for us Americans too illiterate to go through the system, and I ended up in a beautiful pre-war building that had been subdivided into residential units. Now, only the old German lettering on the facade pointed to its original purpose. Kinderheim. It means children's home, but actually it means more like orphanage, said my flatmate. I had five flatmates in total, and he was the one kind enough to give me a tour when I had arrived. It was an immense building, and the necessity of the tour had become self-evident when he took me into the basement. As is common in buildings of this scale, its basement was a maze-like network of subterranean corridors sneaking around maintenance rooms in what I assumed were other apartments, as a couple doors led to side exits in the building. My flatmate led me around an impossible number of turns before we got to the grand finale, a large room with industrial washers and dryers. Here you can wash and hang up, he had said. This interaction encapsulated all the interactions I had with my roommates, quick and functional. We had no animosity that I could detect, but they were all German and I think they were self-conscious about their English, 
though I couldn't find much wrong with it when they did speak. I, on the other hand, did my utmost to fulfill the American stereotype by not bothering to learn their language. Why did it matter if I would be back home in a few months? I led a quiet existence, which was more or less how I liked it. On occasion, I did get drunk with that group of Americans that invariably forms when we leave our natural habitat, but I preferred to wander the old town streets and pour over references in the library. In the apartment, I rarely left the confines of my room, except to use the bathroom or the kitchen. So it was only a little bit strange when December had rolled around, and everyone had left for Christmas. We were all students or apprentices in that apartment, and we all had parents to go back to, apart from me who was too broke for an intercontinental round trip. I elected to stay alone in that apartment for six, for the three weeks which made up the most wonderful time of the year, and I loved it. For these three weeks, the apartment became my house. I spread myself into the kitchen, left my boots in the hallway. I populated the freezer with chicken in preparation for the long supermarket holiday. I even left my toothbrush in one of the two bathrooms, the smaller one right by the apartment door, whose window looks down on a side entrance to the building. With so much freedom, my pattern became irregular. Some days I spent cooking, others I spent in bed, only to leave the apartment sometime past midnight on a directionless wander. The town would be beautifully empty, and I was free to go wherever my boots would take me. This regular irregularity eventually congealed into one blissfully monotonous static. So it was especially giant when the doorbell rang in the middle of the night. I was asleep, and when I was awoken, I hadn't bothered to check the time. My first response was to be annoyed. It was more a buzzer than a bell, and a loud one at that. But still, it took another ring for me to convince myself that I wasn't dreaming. It was a longer one this time, more insistent. At this time of night, I slid out from the covers, dressed only in my underwear. Possibilities rushed through my mind. Was it one of my flatmates who came back early? Had he forgotten about his key? My bare feet padded down the long hallway. At the end of it, next to the apartment door, was the intercon system that communicated with the front entrance. I picked up the receiver and I put it to my ear. Hello? Involuntarily, I looked over my shoulder. I hadn't turned on the lights. Perhaps out of habit from when I wasn't alone in the apartment. But I was alone. No response came from the other end of the intercom. Just static interference. I tried again. Hello, is there anybody there? And then I could hear the sound of a voice. A woman's voice crying. I froze. Unprepared for this eventuality. Two of my flatmates were women. Could something have happened? The crying voice further materialized into words. German words. It was a stream of desperate syllables. I couldn't understand anything. Mentally, I cursed myself for not making more of an effort to learn the language before launching into the only German that I knew. 
Anna, is that you? A confused, huh, came from the other end. Or was it a sob? I tried again. Franzi. There is a pause. And then, as if spurred by the list of two unfamiliar names, the crying started again. It was louder. Another barrage of unintelligible syllables through the sobbing. Frustration at not being understood, crescendoing her voice into a shout. But this time, I could pick out one word, even with my limited understanding. Help. I then realized that I wasn't hearing her voice solely through the intercom. I took a step into the bathroom. I could hear her sobbing coming in through the bathroom window. The one that looked down on the side door to the basement. That meant she wasn't at the front entrance, where the intercom was at. Maybe it was because of this detail that I didn't open the door immediately. I was sure that the intercom was only at the front entrance. The cord was already stretched to its limit, and so I set the receiver down to look out the window. It slipped from my cold fingers and clattered down to the tile floor. I left it there, opening the window to crane my head. It was no use, too dark, and the window was too far out to see the side door. I closed the window. Maybe I was wrong. Maybe there was an intercom at the side entrance. I went back to press the button that would let her in, but I stopped. She was crying really loudly, obviously desperate, and I was a half-naked foreigner. I went back to my room to put on some clothes. It took much longer than it should have to find these sweatpants that I had discarded on the floor, and there wasn't a clean t-shirt in the closet. I dug one out of the dirty laundry hamper, and as I came back into the hallway, I knew that I must have taken too much time. No crying woman would wait this long at a stranger's door before moving on to other options. I got to the intercom and I pressed the button. The buzzer sounded, signifying the front door was unlocked. But it was too far away for me to hear whether someone had opened it. And if the woman was indeed at the side entrance to the basement, I definitely would not hear it open. I turned the knob and I stuck my head out. The hallway was dark. She was gone, she must be. If she had come in, she would have flicked on the house lights. Unless she was distraught, vision blurred by tears, and didn't know where the switch was because she was in a strange apartment building. Come on, man, think. I swung the door open, but again I stopped. I didn't have the key on me, and the door would lock automatically. I was alone in the apartment, so if I locked myself out, I wouldn't be able to help myself, much less a woman suffering from God knows what. I needed to go back to my room. Just then, I heard voices. They ricocheted off the hard concrete walls of the stairway. I couldn't tell if they came from upstairs or downstairs. There were two of them. One was the woman, sobs still in her voice, but she was calmer now in conversation. She had sniffled as she spoke. And the other was also female, but lower pitched and calmer. Her questions seemed confused, 
as if she had just been woken up. I eavesdropped further, but the muffled echoes just sounded like German to me. I went back inside and closed the door behind me. This was probably for the better. Not only did she find someone to help, but someone to actually understand her. It wasn't a job for me. When I slid back into the warmth of my bed, I realized that I had been shivering. Strange events on a cold night. I did not expect myself to find sleep anytime soon, but I did. And when I woke up in the morning, I had already forgotten the incident. It became one of those dreams that fell between fantasy and nightmare. The ones so slightly bizarre that the waking mind forgets them until strange details are triggered by moments of deja vu. Even then, it's unclear whether this fragment of the past is real, or just a half-remembered dream. I had a Skype call with my parents scheduled that next afternoon, morning for them. It was really just to say hi, Merry Christmas, and wish that I could be there. They liked to make Christmas an all-day thing, and catching them for a moment before they started ended up far less tiring than being there in person. After I hung up, my brain occupied itself with other matters of waking life. What movie to watch today? Whether or not to roast the chicken that I had in the freezer? How to enjoy the last six days of being alone in the apartment? I did not remember the incident from the night before. Even when everyone came back for the new semester, and an ambulance took the body away. I decided to walk home from a morning class that day. The ice underfoot hadn't yet been melted by the winter sun. I only looked up in time to see it pull out of the driveway. There was a group of neighbors standing at the front entrance, gossiping. One seemed to be crying. In the fray, I noticed my flatmate, the one who had given me the tour on my first day. He beckoned me over. It's good that it's a cold winter this year, he said in his German accent. Oh, what do you mean? Uh, Marie from upstairs. Her flatmate came back today and found her. She was dead since a week. Nobody could give a straight answer to how Marie from upstairs had died. She had suffocated in the night, as someone had said. No, it was self-inflicted. She did it in the bathtub. It certainly couldn't be murder because in the months that I remained in the apartment, no cop came knocking. And being one of the few actually in the building at the time, I would be a person of interest. I was as morbidly curious as the next, but it never seemed a good time to ask. Excuse me, do you speak English? Can you tell me how that girl died? Nobody voiced these questions. Not even the police, it seemed. As time passed, so did the curiosity, until she was just the girl who had died. Death happened all the time, today, tomorrow, and so on. It was sad and shocking, but explainable. I didn't attend the funeral. Instead, I started an affair with a classmate of mine, an American girl, and then went back to Indiana to complete my thesis. I got an A, got a car, got a job, and got more debt. I rented a small apartment on the cheaper side of town, so Lauren could come over when she would make the six-hour drive. Life was good. But every time that the doorbell rang, I would start to shiver.
It was Lauren that had noticed it the first time that she came to visit. She had parked her car and rung the bell, and I came downstairs to pull her into a case. She grabbed my hand. You're shivering. Are you nervous? Am I? Oh, I guess I'm just cold. Come here. I know how to warm you up. And she really did. We decided to stay in bed all day and order in. When the doorbell rang, I was too tired and naked to answer. So she put on a t-shirt and got the pizza. When she came back in, she stared at me. Are you okay? I think it was this moment that started her habit of studying me. Every now and then I would catch her staring at me while I was preoccupied with whatever I was doing. It wasn't the way a girlfriend would look at her boyfriend, more like an eye through a microscope, watching a bacteria culture, wondering how it moved and why it wasn't moving now. We broke up when the lockdown hit. According to her, we broke up because I was inattentive and emotionally distant. But she had been cold for a few weeks and the virus was a convenient catalyst for ending things. With her gone, I was once again left to my own devices. I got laid off. I had nobody to adjust my schedule to. I spent my days cooking and sitting on the couch, chasing every nostalgia that came to me. With her gone, I had nobody to ring my doorbell, to come up and remind me of distant memories, of a time that must have been important to somebody, somewhere. But now a memory is emerging to the surface, a forgotten dream that has been written down before it slips in the mind again, the kind that can only be recalled through a passing moment of deja vu. And now that I can remember more and more, I'm starting to be scared because the doorbell has been ringing every night. I've been tracking a monster that only comes out late at night. It's the worst thing that I've ever seen. Written by Darkly Gathers. I've been watching The Wheel for a month now. That's the name that I've given this monstrosity, The Wheel. I saw it for the first time on one of my night walks with my dog, Benny. Beyond the edge of the town and out down by the fields and the forest. It was hard to see at the beginning, in the darkness. I mistook its body for a fallen tree at the edge of the woods. Benny noticed it before me anyway, or felt it at least. He stopped and stiffened, tensed and focused. Benny made the mistake of investigating the nest of a hive of yellow jacket wasps once. He got an awful sting on his nose, and he developed a hatred of anything even slightly resembling that nest that we find on our travels. His reaction here made me first think that he had found some such object. What is it, boy? I murmured to him. But he wasn't looking down at the ground. He was staring right out into the field, growling softly from the back of his throat. I remember this feeling of... of cold, just slithering sickly over my skin. I remember crouching by the hedge and peering through, looking out on the farmland and following his gaze. 
and what I first thought was this fallen tree, stuck in the ground at an unusual angle, with branches outstretched and overlapping. I remember a feeling of terrible, icy dread drop like a stone into my stomach as the fallen tree shifted and adjusted its branches in that cool, windless night. My eyes grew used to the darkness, and the moon drifted out from behind a cloud, and the thing was washed in a faint, silvery light. I could see it a little clearer. Massive, you must understand. The size of an elephant, I guess, though far more scrawny and spindly. I still shiver thinking about seeing it that first time, watching it rising up onto all fours. It sickened me then, as it does now, even before I knew what it was capable of. I didn't dare speak, but I kept a warning hand on the back of Benny's neck. Stay boy, stay low and stay quiet. How to describe the wheel's body? Picture the werewolf if you can, from Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. My nephew loves that movie. A bizarre reference, perhaps, but that's the best way that I can think to describe it. Large, hunched, and hairless, stretched over animalistic bones, though more metallic-looking. I don't know, rusty almost. And its head, the creature's head, its namesake. The monster's head is scarcely a head at all. Imagined, if you will, a huge, layered wheel. Again, metal-looking, and ringed with dozens of minuscule-looking amber lights. Benny and I watched as the creature crept through the night to the edge of the farmland. We watched as it leapt back on its haunches, with a low creak and looked up to the nearest tree. A pine, I think. We watched as the great wheelhead began to spin, slowly at first and then faster, with a sound like a rising wind. The wheels within wheels began to rotate around and around until they were nothing more than a blur. The lights that ringed it burst into a fiery intensity and the pine tree found itself caught in a beam of brightening orange light. I stared in confusion and awe, heart pounding as the tree began to grow rapidly right before my eyes. And up it went, up into the air, the branches creaking and cracking with duress as they sprouted with surprise from the sides of the trunk. As the pine needles burst from the rents and fell to the floor in a constant rain, ever growing and ever falling, and still the tree climbed taller. Up, up it went, far up high beyond its brothers. The tree's groans and cracks grew louder and louder, but the wheel scarcely adjusted its position. I remember watching the monster's ribs shift, its silver stomach bulge as its head span around and around. The tree grew upwards for about a minute before it grew no further, and not long after that, the needles stopped falling too. No new leaves were grown, and the wood began to rot and the bark began to split. Though still the wheel held the tree in its gaze, the branches drooped and dropped from the trunk. The tree began to stoop and waver, groaning under the stress, until at last its roots gave out and it tumbled to the side, 
crashing loudly into its neighbor and resting there, dead, as its base began rotting away. Only then did the wheel's head begin to slow. The lights dimmed and the creature took a measured, careful step back. It waited perhaps a moment or two more for the spinning to cease and the lights to fade in, then that was it. I watched it look around and then bound away across the fields on heavy feet, disappearing into the shadows at the edge of the forest. That was all that it took. All it took for me to become obsessed. Obsessed with the beast. How could I not be? Benny always knew where to go. He seemed to sense which of our walks would be wheel hunting walks beforehand. His whole demeanor was always totally different. He's normally such a happy and carefree guy, but the nights that we went after the wheel, it's like he could sense their importance. So, just under a week after the first incident, and several sleepless nights spent attempting fruitless research, we found the creature again, Benny and I, a few miles south of its previous spot, at the edge of a field filled with sheep. The moon was not so bright that night. The air was still at first, but I still recall the sudden fright I felt at seeing the shadowed rim of the wheel rise up from the ditch at the edge of the field. Merged for a second with the shadows of the broken wooden fence, and then climbing up and above, clambering over and into the night, its limbs long, that circle of lights brightening and slowly starting to spin, and then faster and faster. It's alright, Benny. Stay low, boy. I murmured in a wavering voice as we watched, crouched from our position nearby. Most of the sheep awoke and fled, bleating as they bounced clumsily across the field. But one poor creature did not. Caught in the beam of the wheels, brightening lights and frozen in place. We could only watch as the light grew stronger still. As the wheels spanned faster and faster and the monster drew hungrily closer. We watched as the wool began to burst from the sheep's body. Grain and billowing out as the creature's ears began to droop. As its horns grew out from its head at an impossible rate. We watched as the sheep was enveloped in its wool and eventually collapsed to the ground. Down into the dead grass it fell as a pile of wool and bones. And only when it was a little more than dust did the wheel pull back and allow the spinning of its head to slow. I ducked instinctively as it seemed to pass its gaze over our position in the shrubbery. It's difficult to tell where the creature is looking at. The only clue is that circle of lights. It didn't come after us, though. It seemed to enjoy the sheep more than the tree, as it went after three more that night before disappearing. It came back the next night, too, and took some more. Though on the third night, I found myself warned away by an angry farmer. Two of his vehicles positioned in the field with floodlights blaring. Benny and I didn't see the wheel that night, or the night after that. But then, at the end of the week, Benny caught the wheel scent yet again. All of our walks were in pursuit of the wheel by this point. I was losing sleep over the monstrosity, but I had to see it again. Get some proper footage or something. 
my phone doesn't record so well in the dark, but I have an old camera that might do the trick. I swear that it is a setting specifically for night. So out we went, out into the night. We didn't leave the town this time, just to the outskirts. We walked for the better part of an hour and passed a homeless man, leant against the side of a building, bare feet stretched out over the cobblestones, as the drizzle began to patter down all around us. Evening, he nods to me and I nod back. I pause at the sound of a noise from the far end of the street, but it's only a group of kids, teenagers I guess, drunken stumbling home from one of the local bars. Benny stops beside me too though, fur risen and ears pinned back, and the homeless man seems to notice. Oh, they're not a bad group of lads, you know, he chuckles. They often have money left over at this kind of time. It's why I'm still awake after all. Nothing to be afraid of, in fact. Quiet, I hiss to him, all of a sudden, and then, sorry, but please, shh. The man raises an eyebrow at me, but does as I say as I suddenly drop to the ground, peering out down the street from behind a nearby bin. What the? He mutters, following my gaze as the lads shout and laugh their way up the street. Behind them, clambering down the side of a building in the rain, is the wheel. Avoiding the direct glare of the street lamps, it creeps its way over the road like an enormous spider watching its prey down below. I'm telling you, mate, I could've got with her. One of the guys blurts out as his friends start laughing. His speech is slurred and one of them still carries a bottle in his hand. She had a boyfriend, mate. Didn't you see that guy at the bar? Another manages to choke out through laughter. Though the laughing stops the second, the wheel's shadow falls long and dark across these stones and puddles before them. What the... The sound of the wheel's spin rises swiftly and suddenly, like a wind. The head of the beast becomes a quick blur and the lights around the rim begin to brighten. The lads look up. Jesus Christ! In a frenzied panic, they start stumbling and staggering in different directions off the road. Chaos sets in. I can feel the tension of both my dog and the homeless man tighten beside me. The shock and the sheer disbelief. I remember what I'm here for and I start fumbling with my camera. Johnny! One of the lads shouts above the sound of the wheel and the wash of the rain. But the boy in the middle, the one with the bottle, is caught in the center of the road. In the amber glare of the creature's beam. His eyes are bright and terrified with the light's reflection and with mouth open. It looks as if a scream is caught in his throat. Uh, help. He stutters before his jaw is locked in place. I struggle with the camera. Oh, we gotta help him. The man beside me mutters, hand on my shoulder. But what could we do? What is there to do? One of the boy's mates sprints off into the night. The other shouts and panics, hands on his head. But the wheel has its prize. I watch as the lights brighten and the wheel spins faster, as the boy grows a little taller and fills out. I watch his hair burst from his head, 
and I watch as creases and wrinkles appear across his face. The skin on his arms start to loosen and the color of his hair begins to gray. His jaw trembles. He looks as if he's trying to speak as a tear rolls down the side of his face. The crow's feet aside his eyes deepen and darken, and he is forced to a stoop as the rain falls. Sir, please, what can we do? The homeless man hisses, shaking me, but I don't respond. There's nothing we can do. We can't help this boy now. A sob escapes the victim's throat, caught in the sounds of the rushing wind, and he closes his eyes one final time. His friends have all gone now. I don't know where to. I watch as he exhales and collapses to the ground with a crunch, and still the wheel draws his energy his body convulsing and twitching until he has crumbled to a skeleton. And then, as with the sheep, to dust, already washing across the stone in the rain. The lights of the wheel start to fade. Its spinning slows and the targeting beams fade away. Silence, but for the gentle patter of the rain. The ancient camera at last is finally roused to life. Da-da-da-ding, it proudly proclaims, a digital jingle, loud in the strained tension of the street. Too loud, actually, far too loud. Benny jumps at the sound, and he's not the only one. To my utter horror, the wheel, still balanced between buildings and perched above the street, swings around its monstrous head, right towards our position with a terrible creak, and the lights reignite. Crap. Benny barks. The homeless man swears and staggers back up against the wall, splashing in a puddle that is formed beside us. Terror strikes me. Run, I shout. And with Benny at my heels, we run down the street and race around a corner, sending up great splashes as we do so. Help, wait. The homeless man cries out from behind me, and as I round the corner, I shoot a look back over my shoulder. I watch in dismay as he falls to the ground and thuds against these stones with a grunt. I watch as he is caught in the beam. His eyes meet mine, and I hear that terrible whirring, both eerily metallic and yet natural at the same time. The rising wind. I see the shadow of the beast creep into position from around the corner. Don't, don't leave me, mate. The man pleads in a hoarse voice, but it is already too late. He reaches out a hand to try and lift himself off the ground, and then suddenly he freezes. The air above and around him shimmers in orange. I watch as he starts to shale, as his eyes roll back and a tooth loosens from his gums, falling to the stones with a clatter, as his fingernails lengthen and hands become wrinkled and spotted. I... I'm so sorry, Gemma, he whispers before his lips crack still. A moth flutters into the beam and disappears before my eyes into powder. Benny is barking, and I become aware that I have stopped running. I am standing and staring aghast as the man on the ground takes his final ragged breath. Benny bites at my sleeve and pulls and the spell is broken. I watch as the man dissolves into bones with a quick, sad sigh, and I turn tail and run, 
running through the streets around corner after corner, as far away from the wheel as we can, heading roughly back in the direction of the house. Back to my lane, back inside, slamming the door shut tight, I collapse against it, falling to the floor with my head in my hands. Jesus, oh crap, oh crap, what do I do? What the heck do I do? It's been a week now since our last encounter with the wheel, and I still see that night in my dreams. The crumbling and disintegration of the people in the streets. The glare of the monster. Benny rests his hand in my lap, looking up at me with those big eyes of his, and I scratch him behind the ear. You know, don't you, boy? You ready to go out again? He barks softly, and I rise from the desk. I grab from the side my latest purchase, a high-intensity LED floodlight, a massive thing in the weight of a brick, but it's bright all right, it's bright as heck, and the wheel hates the light, that's what I've assumed at least. I need to stop jumping into these situations so carelessly, I need to think more, be a little more rational, have a bit more of a plan. I fasten on my coat and crouch down to my dog. You ready, boy? He looks at me panting, and with a deep breath, I lead us out onto the street. I'm nowhere near as confident walking at night as I used to be. Benny leads us through the deserted streets, sniffing his way through the darkness. A faint mist hangs unwanted around the edges of lampposts in the distance and clings to the base of the buildings. As we head further and further through the town, I find myself startled by every shifting shadow, every miscellaneous noise. Come on, I mutter to myself. Get it together. But it won't be far now. Benny's gotten so good at following the subtle trail the wheel leaves behind. Benny stops and whines a little, and quickly I lead us to a nearby skip to use as a cover. A moment or two later... A figure, a shadow at first, and then more clearly, a girl, comes walking up from the mist and down the street. She has her headphones in, walking alone, her footsteps falling in time to some unheard song. This will be the wheel's target. Benny has begun to growl, and I see the collapsing bodies of the boy and the homeless man in my mind's eye. My heart rate increases and I start to sweat, despite the chill in the air. It's going to happen. It's all going to happen again. I hear the man's voice in my head. We gotta help him. Sir, please, what can we do? And I realize that I have to do something. What's even the point of these exhausted midnight excursions if I'm not going to do something? Hey, I call out with a hand cupped around my mouth. Psst. Hey! But the girl can't hear me. She walks right by on the opposite side of the road, humming quietly. She hasn't even seen me. Nor has she seen the looming shape through the shadows behind her. A towering behemoth, rising up and out of the mist. A long limb stretched out far to grab a hold of a nearby building's emergency exit staircase creeping as it did before her, hungrily watching its prey. Though it moves with less care this time, 
It makes more of that creaking, metallic noise as it clamors. It has it grown less cautious in its haunts, more feverish for the taste of a human life. My voice catches in my throat. I can't call out now, I just can't. It'll hear me and it'll take me instead. And the lights around the rim of its enormous head start to intensify. It's happening. My eyes dart from the head of the beast to the oblivious girl, alone and foolish on her late night walk. The wheel tightens its grip on the side of the building right by me, and dust crumbles from beneath its claws to the street as its namesake starts to spin. Faster and faster, and the whirring grows louder. The girl finally notices something is amiss as her shadow multiplies and splits right beneath her feet. She turns to look up and behind her in confusion, and her mouth falls open in horrified shock. The orange of the fiery glare of the wheel is caught in her eyes and she is trapped. The wheel leans hungrily down towards her as she begins to age right before my eyes. She grows in height, right through her twenties as dark circles appear beneath her eyes. Creases deepen between her eyebrows as she stares with horror at the source of the lights. And the light of my own ignites with a burst of dazzling sun. A white, bright beam swung round and up into the face of the monstrous wheel. I would have thought of something cool to say had I not been literally shaking with fear as I burned the floodlight into the wheel. Its own lights falter at once, and with its head spinning, it disengages its target and it scurries backwards. A low and disturbing metallic shriek echoing from its head as the girl, now woman, crumples to the ground, groaning. Back! Get back! I bellow, finding my voice at last as it knocks chaotically into the nearest wall, sending shards of crumbling brick raining down. On heavy feet and claws, it staggers back and turns, hastening away into the night, away from the intensity of the beam and into the safety of the shadows. Still trembling and not daring to turn off the floodlight's glare, I go to join Benny, already sniffing around the girl in the street. Hey, I say to her, hey, are you alright? We've got to get you out of here. She raises her head at me, and propping herself up on an arm, she shakily takes out her headphones. What, what was that? She murmurs, and then seems surprised at the sound of her own voice. I feel, I don't know. She clears her throat, distressed. Something's off. She winces as she climbs up to her feet, looking down at her hands. Her fingernails reach out far from the ends of her fingers, though she had broken a couple in the fall. What the heck is going on? She whispers, and my heart goes out to her. How old is she now? How much time has been taken from her? I'm sorry, I mutter. And what else is there for me to say? What do you say to someone in a situation like this? The sound of the worrying is returning. I can't see it, but I can hear it. Benny barks and growls. It's alright, Benny. It's okay. I grab the woman or the girl by the collar of her coat. You have to go, alright? Get out of here. If it catches you in its light, it ages you, you hear me? It takes years from your life until you're nothing but bones. 
It... it what? She looks down at her hands again, turning them over. It ages you? I give her a starting shove as a shadow creeps around the roof of a nearby building. I swing the floodlight up towards it and it disappears for a second time, slinking back into temporary shadow. Go. And to her credit, finally, she dies. I hold out until she has vanished from sight and then I break for it too. I retreat down a nearby alley, panting and waiting listening close. I don't want the wheel to know where I am so I switch off the floodlight, blinking as I try to force my eyes to readjust to the darkness. It's here that I finally catch my breath. It clouds and fogs before me as I listen as intently as I can for the sounds of the wheel. What's even my plan here? Keep it out in the open until sunrise. What am I expecting to happen? Where does it go and where does it go during the day? We have to keep following. I need to know where it goes, where its hideout is. So, mustering all of my courage, I leave the relative safety of the alley and continue on down the street, keeping close to the shadows. Benny leads me through the town and out back to the fields. We walk for most of the night, he and I, and I can tell that he's getting tired. I mean, heck, I am too. But we have to know where it goes. Benny seems to lose the scent a few hours into our quest. I check my watch with tired eyes. 4.35 a.m. Jesus. We're out by the fields. Not these same ones as before. There's no sheep here. Just a rusty old scrapyard and a disused barn. It's morbidly tempting. But I refrain from checking the barn tonight. I just can't bear it. So I resolve to try again tomorrow. Come on, boy. I say, stifling a racking yawn. Let's go home. I'm back in bed once the sun has risen and the birds have begun their morning chirps. Benny and I sleep till late afternoon and I awake feeling groggy and exhausted. I can't keep going on like this. I push myself through a day of work, grimly trying to recoup the lost time before it gets noticed. But my thoughts are all on the night. On the next night, on scoping out that barn, on drawing attention to the monster and driving it out for good. I find myself doodling in the margins of my notes, watching the hands on the clock tick by. The slow, crawling passage of time. I will it to go faster waiting for the sun to set and the night to fall. Come on, hurry up. Why can't the time go just a little bit faster? As it always does, however, the day draws to a steady close. I've been ready for hours, but when midnight strikes, I am out the door in an instant. Camera around my neck, floodlight held in one hand. Come on, Benny, I say. There's a good boy. And out we go, out into the darkness. I want to head straight to the fields and straight to the barn, but Benny has other ideas. He keeps barking and trying to lead me back to the scene of the attack last night. Come on, boy, no, we're headed back to the barn. But he won't budge, and eventually I relent, following along as he hurries back across the cobblestone streets, 
and between the building stood the road where the wheel had struck the girl. What are we doing here, Benny? I murmur, as Benny comes to a stop, looking out over the street, tail wagging. I squint and see at the far end, a figure stood beneath one of the street lamps, a silhouette. Checking carefully around for signs of the wheel, though emboldened by Benny's relative chill, I walk out down the street and towards the figure. As we draw closer, it turns to us, and I recognize her at once as the girl from the previous night. Oh, thank God, she mutters as she marches towards me, taking me by surprise as she grabs me by the collar and stares angrily into my face. Benny barks at her, but she ignores him. Her eyes, her eyes are the same, but the face that I look back into now, the face I see clearly in the light, is a woman in her late thirties, maybe early forties. What happened to me? She shouts, and already the tears start to fall. She loses her composure almost at once and releases me, crying softly into her sleeve. How do I go back? What do I have to do to go back? I run a hand through my hair with pity. I'm sorry, I tell her. I don't think... I don't think there is a way to go back. She sniffs and wipes a hand across her face and she looks back at me. I've literally had the worst day of my life, you know, she says. I say nothing. All the problems I was faced with yesterday, whether or not my boyfriend likes the other girl what I'm going to study at college, lyrics for the song I was trying to write, and the gift that I was going to get for my mom's birthday. She forces a humorous laugh. All meaningless now. My friends and family don't recognize me, and why would they? I would kill to get back the problems I was doing with yesterday. But yesterday is gone. She looks at her hands again. It's not fair. I feel so much older. It's just not fair. I want to back. I want to go back. Benny nudges her leg and she smiles sadly, scratching his head. She sighs. He's a nice dog. What's his name? It's Benny, I reply, and she nods. I'm Celia, by the way. It's nice to meet you, Celia. Ben. Ben. That's right. She cocks her head at me. But isn't that your dog's name? No, his name is Benny. And she laughs for real now. It's a nice sound, though it's broken by a snort of amusement. You named your dog after yourself? What kind of person does that? I didn't name him after myself, dang it. I got him from a shelter. He already had the name when I found him. Ah, I see, I see. She grins down at Benny, his tongue lolling happily. Still very funny though. Hmm. She scratches his head a little longer. So, enough chit chat. How do we kill it, Ben? How do we kill the monster? Kill it? Listen, this thing is the most dangerous. She cuts me off. Do I look like I care? I have nothing left you here. I have nothing. Her eyes shine in the light of the street lamp. So, I'm telling you now that I'm here to kill it. Whatever it takes. And so, with a sigh, I gesture her to come with us, and Benny now leads us the way that I had expected him to. 
sniffing the stones and taking us out to the edge of town, towards the fields and the abandoned barn. I tell her what I know. The wheel, that's what I've been calling it. It seems like it has to stay more or less in the same position while it eats, and it takes a moment or two to warm up too. But once you're in that light, you're caught. You're stuck. What's its weakness? I don't know about weakness, but it hates the light. Other than its own, obviously. It avoids these street lamps and the sun. And it hates this thing. I lift the floodlight. That's how I scared it off last night. Is that it? Just a light? Anything else you've learned at all? What is the light, do you think? The light that the wheel makes itself. I shrug as we leave the town behind us. It's another silvery moonlit night. I don't know, I'm sorry. I don't know much at all, really. It can eat trees and plants as well as animals. Insects, too. Trees, plants, she repeats. Insects? Yeah, same method. It just focuses the beam and takes the life of its target. She rubs her chin in thought. So it targets insects and plants. Well, no, they just got caught in the beam. Grass around the feet of a sheep. A moth that flew into the light, that kind of thing. Her eyes light up. So the beam isn't all that focused then, is it? If it kills anything caught in the light. I consider this. We climb the fence at the edge of the dark field and carefully and quietly make our way across the grass towards the barn. And Benny starts to whine, ears pinned back. All right, she whispers to me as we approach. I have a plan. But I never get to hear it. From behind us, from the scrapyard nearby, there comes the sound of twisting metal and creaking machinery. Benny near enough jumps out of his skin with a yelp, and I do essentially the same. Lights rise up from the clutter and a long, silvery arm reaches out to provide leverage as the body and the head of the wheel rise up from the wreckage. It whirs with menace as the lights blink into life and the great head starts to spin. It clambers down the hill of junk towards us with a sickening speed that I had not yet seen from the behemoth. Benny races forwards to face it barking loudly and angrily, teeth bared. Benny! I call out in a panic. My companion's shadow sent out long and dark across the grass, now illuminated orange. Benny, heal! Come back, boy! The wheel raises itself up, angling its light down to Benny, and I sprint towards him, all fear temporarily forgotten as I rush up to grab him. He's not a little dog by any means, and I grunt with the exertion. But I haul him up and fling him out to the side, to the safety of the shadow as I find myself caught in motion. A fly in resin, eyes wide, my body stiffens, and I'm just about able to turn my head to look up into the wheel's almighty gaze as it starts to draw from me my life force. Paradoxically, everything slows. Is this it then? I think to myself. I feel the passage of time as water, rushing swiftly over my body. Waves of warmth and ice wash alternatingly across my skin as I feel it tighten in places and loosen in others. 
My wisdom teeth ache with sudden throbs of pain as they push themselves through the backs of my gums. The joints in one of my hands start to seize. I can feel my fringe growing long down my face and into my vision. Did I lead a good life? Did I do enough? Is this all of my fault? My obsession? My obsession has done this. It has taken my time from me. Time that I can surely never recover. But my thoughts are interrupted by a sudden shriek from above, and I catch a blur of motion through the darkness. Celia leaves from the roof of the barn and, like a madwoman, down onto the wheel's back. I cannot see what it is exactly that she holds, but it is sharp, and it is metal. And she hacks into the monster's neck, eyes wide and burning with fury. The wheel creaks and cries out with a metallic distress call, the lights faltering, and with a crack it tears away its gaze, leaving me gasping in the darkness, clutching my chest and looking down to my hands. How much did it take? A decade perhaps, or a little bit more. I look back up. Benny is barking and gnawing at the wheel's legs. The monster itself swings its head around from side to side, furiously trying to shake off the attacker on its back. I return to my senses and I grab the floodlight, switching it on with a blast of light and aiming the beam at the monster. It recoils with frustration, but alas, Celia is knocked from its back and down to the ground. She doesn't give up, though. She immediately grabs a hold of one of the wheel's legs, stabbing her weapon in as deep as it'll go and keeping a firm grip on the handle. The wheel in its rage looks down to its feet. The great spinning head starts whirring around and around, and Celia is caught in the intense orange glare. As indeed is the wheel itself. Heal, Benny, I call out, and this time he does, running towards me, but still looking back at the scene in the field. Celia's hair starts sprouting from her head, graying and thinning and falling to the ground. Her lips start to wrinkle, the lines aside her eyes become deep and many, but still her bitter grip persists. She will not let the wheel go. The wheel makes noises that I've never heard before. The whirring of its head starts to grind. Rust and dust falls from its joints. Its posture becomes more hunched, and the color of its body begins to lighten and pale. Unaware of what it is doing to itself or perhaps too caught in the frenzy to care. Celia, I call out, aiming the floodlight as best I can. But it isn't enough. At last, her grip is lost and she tumbles to the grass. The wheel screams with rage, drawing everything from her until she is nothing more than a cloud of dust to be lost in the wind. The wheel staggers away, limping, and away it goes, slower than before far slower out of the darkness and retreat. It looks back at me and I raise my own weapon. I catch it in the fire of my own light, aimed right into the center of its horrible, monstrous head. Go to hell. I mutter as the floodlight buzzes with power, as the creature collapses. Down it goes under the grass, and there it disintegrates. Its body falls apart as if it were a toy dropped from a great height. A black oil-like substance spills out onto the grass, 
As the wheel and all the wheels within simply disconnect, they break apart. Some roll around a little before they drop, but drop they do, into nothing more than another pile of junk in the field. Silent, still, and lightless. I drop the floodlight and race to join Benny, but there is nothing here but dust blown out across a patch of dead grass. She was here, and in the blink of an eye, she was gone. I'm sorry, Celia. I murmur sadly into the night. I inspect the corpse of the wheel, if indeed it can even be called a corpse. Earlier, I had likened its body to a werewolf from afar, but now, up close and deceased, it looks like a discarded art project, just a rack, a great pile of, of nothing, substanceless really. Come on, Benny, I say to my friend, let's go home, pal. I get more asleep these days, I still do my research, don't get me wrong, regarding the wheel, about whether there might be more like them out there. There are important questions that remain unanswered. But you'll be pleased to know that I do allocate my time more carefully. There is nowhere near as much waste of it. I have a little less of it than I did before, after all. And we ain't none of us getting it back. I hope you all enjoyed today's episode. As always, wherever you might be in the world, I hope that you stay safe and sound. And don't forget... Stay creepy.